Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 263 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're talking about the top 10 movies of 2023, a little bit later than we've talked about those that list in the past few years. But this year, we were methodical. We took our time. I'm not going to say we saw everything we wanted to see before we made this list. Scott's shaking his head on screen because there's like two movies next week <laughs> that he probably want, wished he would have seen before making this list. But nevertheless, we've done a good job. We've cleaned up a few things, and we're here to talk about our 10 favorite movies, our top 10 movies of 2023. I've already said his name, but with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, I would say Happy New Year because it feels like na- like today after today, it is truly a new year in cinema. We've, we, you know, we've already seen some debatably 2024 movies. But Scott, how are you doing? Are you ready to deliver your top 10 films of the year? I am ready, Scott. I'm good. I think what the people really want to know talking about this catching up on movies is, you know, yeah. based on what you told us the last episode, did sure. you did you get to Saltburn? Did you watch Saltburn? Nope. Although I guess I, sh- I shouldn't ask you now because, you know, I'm sure that if you did, it will be coming up in the top 10 portion of the show. So. Uh, Scott, I think there's a better chance that it comes up in a different portion of the show (laughs) if I if I had seen it and I will leave you all in suspense about whether it does come up. Uh, Hint, it will not come up. But yeah, I'm good, Scott. You know, I've been talking for the last couple of weeks on the show about sort of in being fully in my catch up mode because there was a lot of things that I did not see um, or I could not see or did not see, you know, when they came out or, you know, for whatever reason. And although. As I was shaking my head here a couple minutes ago, there, yeah, there's a couple movies that I was just completely unable to see. I, I'm pretty uh, pleased with the catch up that I was able to do in the last couple of weeks. And I feel like I do have a fairly complete list at 73 movies. I know you have more, um, sure. but, uh, you know, I feel much more comfortable in saying this is a, you know, a comprehensive list of the best movies of the year than I would have even two or three weeks ago. So um yeah no i'm excited it's our sixth time doing this i think this is always my favorite episode um you know always enjoy celebrating the best that the year had to offer you know a lot of these a lot of the time and probably will prove true tonight the movies that make our list aren't even ones that we necessarily did full reviews on on the podcast so getting to talk about some of those with you is always fun too and just revisit the year that was 2023 obviously it will go down in history as the year of Barbenheimer, I think. Um, but there were a lot of other great movies. I mean, both of those were, were great movies. Certainly, uh, you know, we both enjoyed Barbie and Oppenheimer quite a bit. Um, but there were a lot of other movies worth celebrating as well that um, we'd like to give some airtime to tonight, certainly. Yeah, I think I was on record as talking about how I felt like this year overall was a bit less exciting maybe than last year or or a bit not I want to say a down year but at the end of the day when I was making my list this is also notably I think the first year where I did not rank my movies during the year literally on Sunday was the first time I actually went through an exercise of ranking movies this year which is not how you do it you have a running list constantly throughout the year it's not how I've done it in the past and I think I liked that it but it, it did have this weird effect where I thought that the year hadn't been that great I think in movies and then when the time I had the end of Sunday when I'd made my list. Yeah, I made some tweaks here and there, but I'm like, you know, it was still a pretty good year. Obviously, it's no, it's no 2021. It's no 2019. I'll say it, but especially my top 
you know, four, three, four, five movies, maybe even up to even I'd say past that, like our movies that I think I will be thinking about for years to come. If we God help us, if we make it to a best of the 2020s list, I would expect some of these movies to be in the conversation for making that list. And, you know, I think that maybe I'd I don't want to say I underrated the year, but I think I maybe didn't appreciate how much I liked the films at the top of my list versus other years. So that's that's what I'll say to start out. Yeah. And I would just say to that, I would you know, it was a good year. My, my sort of take would be that there were a lot of very good movies, but there were only a few great movies. And I I'd think that, that our yeah. our conversation might reflect that tonight, because I think we're probably going to be in agreement for for a lot you know of the episode about maybe what those few great movies were from this year i don't know we'll see but we'll see um but yeah no i uh i i think it was it was a solid year i mean certainly i didn't have any trouble filling a top 10 a top 20 and you know there are quite a few movies in my 20 to 30 range that i felt you know kind of bad leaving out so um i, I say that makes it a good year even if overall i think i had less five-star reviews of movies on Letterboxd, you know, than I, I normally would. Maybe I'm just going, maybe, maybe I'm just becoming a hardened man in my old age, but um, I also think maybe that's a reflection of the, the general quality at the top of the list this year. Yeah. One of the fun exercises that I like to do is like, go to your number 30 on your list, which, which does that, does that equate to the 30? or whatever on your on your previous year's list. And I think that I might like my number 30 this year more than my number 30 last year. That's obviously a, a comp- only a measurement of depth, right? Let's like, see. So I had Ferrari as my number 30 movie this year. Last okay. year, my number th- 30 movie was The Northman. I think I like The Northman more than Ferrari. So Okay. Um, wow. Northman number 30. I know. Yeah, that seems That's, crazy that it was that yeah. low, right? Yeah, I think you messed up your list last year, man. You want to go redo that episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had I had a YouTube documentary on here. So, yeah, maybe it's really more like 29. But if that's the case, then my 30 becomes the Batman, which I also liked more. than. And the Batman at 32. Jeez, dude. Brutal last year. I know. A lot of really good <laughs> movies last year. There were. Yeah. 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 Well, that's enough about 2022. Let's keep talking about 2023 here, as is our, our sort of ceremonial rite of passage. We do to kick off proceedings highlight our uh, sometimes we've called it worst movie sometimes we call it least favorite uh, film however you want to define it this year scott what movie do you want to highlight right now as as the film that was uh, a bomb is something that you would not just not only not recommend as a movie but actually would recommend people stay away from it what is that film for you this year yeah i, I mean I think the thing is, both of us are probably agreed. I, I don't want to speak for you, Scott. I think both of us, though, are, are agreed on what the actual worst movie of this year was. And it's one that we already devoted some time to back at the start of the year in our Sundance episode. That was Susanna Fogel's Cat Person, the adaptation of the New Yorker, right? New Yorker short story, I think. Um, something like, either the New Yorker or the Atlantic. It it's not, something like that. Yeah, yeah. probably the New Yorker. Uh, you know, infamous sort of short story about a, 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 a brief relationship that, you know, formed via text message um, and, and later in person. But uh, yeah, that that movie absolutely stunk. 
and the the decisions made in the third act of of cat person to expand upon the story the short story um some of the most one, some of the most bizarre storytelling decisions in recent film and and so that's down there but because we set our piece on that i want to highlight a different sure. movie and i do usually like to devote this space to pick out a filmmaker a film that was maybe a more notable film you know someone who maybe has been at awards winning award-winning director in the past this is certainly the case of my my choice for this year uh because you know we need to be able to say when these people need to be taken down a peg i think it's a much more productive exercise to call out movies like this than it is to point to something like cat person which you know it is a, a much lower profile movie um than the movie that i'm going to mention the movie that i'm going to going to point out is scott did you know that taika watiti made a movie this year I, I don't i don't know if you realize that i don't know how many people uh in our audience realized that he did make a movie this year but um he actually did and it was a movie called next goal wins again may not be ringing any bells for you uh, i happened to see this movie because i tagged along with a friend um who is a has has an online uh, media outlet that he writes movie reviews for and so he got a press screening basically here in charlotte an early screening of the movie he invited me i was not that he invited a bunch of other people first who saw the film and, and said no way yeah. <laughs> will i see that movie with you and then you tagged along <laughs> no he invited me i was like you know it's a free early screening i'll i'll go it could be cool um it was not cool uh scott this movie um for you know those who may not be familiar which again is probably most people because i think maybe early critic screenings ended up being the only way that you could see this film in the end because it just feels like this movie was never actually in theaters um which is crazy to say because taika waititi you know he's known for the marvel you know the the thor films he just directed the last thor film he before that he was coming off his oscar win for jojo rabbit which he he won best adapted screenplay still one of the most ludicrous oscar wins of all time but he did win the award that year um and you know here's here's another film that you would have thought on paper you know searchlight's producing this you would have thought on paper that this is um a a, an awards contender it tells the story of the american samoa national football team it's actually adapted from a uh documentary uh, in 2014 and when i say football I, I mean soccer but um documentary that told the real story of this team that you know they were the worst team in international football they had the worst loss ever to australia they lost like 31 to nothing or something in an international friendly um, and they start off next goal wins this film by like showing the real footage of that, but end up coming back with the help of this Dutch American coach, Thomas Rongen, um, and playing in a world cup qualifying game and actually winning the game. Spoiler alert for the end of the movie. Um, but the movie's an absolute disaster, Scott, you know, it sounds like the stuff is sort of basic inspirational sports fodder, but it can't even get to that level. Um, it's. I think it's about a hundred minutes long. This felt like the shortest movie of the year. It felt like it was like 50 minutes long. That's how slight this movie is. Um, but the major problems are number one, the way that it handles this um, transgender character 
who again is a real player, Jaya Selua, uh, on the team. And the the coach, who's played by Michael Fassbender in Next Goal Wins, you know, begins his time as coach essentially by making you know making inappropriate comments, offensive comments, and that ends up leading to a scene where Thomas Rongen, Michael Fassbender's character, then comes to Jaya's house and apologizes uh, for saying what he said, and then Jaya actually has to respond by also apologizing, which is a mind-blowing thing to put in this movie, right? That uh, a, a a coach is misgendering this person and, you know, comes to apologize for it, you know, a couple scenes later, just like, oh, I'm, I'm fully healed now. And then that scene has to be punctuated by the transgender player also having to apologize. Um, just unbelievable stuff, honestly. So the movie gets off to a wrong foot there. And then the movie just, it just, it, it's, it doesn't feel like a movie. And we get to the end. We get to the final game. Michael Fassbender is in the locker room. He's going to make the inspirational speech, you know, that you see in every sports movie. And if you look up this movie on Letterboxd, it has a tagline that's something like, be happy. I think that's just what it just says, be happy. And that is ultimately what Michael Fassbender's final speech in this movie amounts to. He basically just says, this game doesn't matter. Soccer doesn't matter. Sports don't matter. Who cares? Just do what makes you happy. Just go be happy. Um, I, I wrote in my letterbox at the time that this was finally a, a sports movie for the the sports ball crowd, right? The people who don't actually care about sports and um, and all that, because the movie just like completely diminishes the value whatsoever of uh, the game outside of oh, well, does this make you happy? Good, we'll go do it. Um, it's it's a colossal misfi misfire. You know, again, I'm already pretty down on Taika Waititi because of the whole Oscar situation with Jojo Rabbit, but um, you know, I, I think this is a new low for him and it's not just because, you know, of searchlight or something that you didn't hear about this movie or didn't really go see this movie this year. It's because the movie is very, very bad. And I don't think anyone wanted this thing, you know, within the eyes of the public, because, um, I don't think there are very many people saying positive things about it out there. So next goal wins Taika Waititi, you're on the list. Yeah. I look, I you you saw that film, you reported back to me and I said, hmm, OK, and it, any chance of me seeing that film then disappeared because it, I've been just as negative, if not more negative on Taika Waititi than you have, I feel like over the past couple years, something about not just the whole shtick with, of course, winning adapted screenplay for Jojo Rabbit and the I mean, just the really bad taste that a lot of Thor Love and Thunder left in my mouth about sort of the way that he talked about and promoted that film in addition to then you know what the film is actually like itself I he he was sort of already on although I don't have a list like you do he was sort of on my version of that uh, already and I spared myself the uh anguish of seeing a film about a sport which is my favorite sport and uh it it Again, I'm I'm not really sort of like gatekeepy or or holier than thou about the whole like taking sports seriously thing, but it is a weird tenor to set for the film. Uh, you know, 
maybe that's what happened in real life. That is the actual speech that he gave. It, interesting, if so. I mean, I, I guess at some point you can't take it too seriously when you're uh, relative to the competition as, I don't want to say inferior, but that's probably actually the right way to, to put it in terms of the the actual amount of resources and professional time that you can spend when you're a group of probably semi-professional players in uh, playing against Australia where you have a, a well-funded national league of club teams. So I understand that there's resource uh, deficiencies in those areas and, and maybe you, you approach motivation of it differently in, in that environment. But look, what you've described here, not exciting to me as a film. And it's why I did not go see this picture. Uh, when it was briefly in the, in theaters, it was available for me to see, and I said, "Thank you." Next is what I said. Yeah, uh, definitely the right call, Scott. This movie is is a disaster on every level. Yeah, my my least favorite film of the year, uh, sort of tied with Cat Person, was another Sundance film. I believe I also talked about that movie on our Sundance podcast back in January. That film is um, Bad Behavior, Alice Englert's film out of Sundance, the daughter of Jane Campion. I think at the time probably made some sort of joke about how the fact that it is the only reason she was able to make a movie is because she was the daughter of Jane Campion. I don't really feel the need to to rehash the Nepo baby discourse or just how un, like borderline unwatchable this film was. The film, Scott, was so unwatchable that you turned the film off. You actually did watch. The I first walked part. I walked yeah. out and I was watching it at home. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, I finished the film, having spent you know it's a sunk cost fallacy, but I it's having spent the money on it, I finished the movie. I didn't um, really benefit at all from from that, and I did not enjoy the film. I think I already talked about this, so I want to talk about a film not that has a famous filmmaker necessarily, but certainly a high profile film, mostly because of the stars it involved or the star it involved and the platform on which it was released. That is a Netflix film that was released over the summer. I wouldn't say it starred this this person, but certainly was a prominent uh, feature of the supporting cast. That is Adam Sandler. And it is, it is a the, the Sandler family comedy, I think is the only way to describe it, because his entire family, I think, is in this movie. And that is his film, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah. Uh, the film is about uh, you know a, t- a teenage daughter uh, named, I believe... Uh, I think it's Stacy, uh, who she and her best friend Lydia, who've always dreamed about having this sort of combined epic bat mitzvah, like combined themed bat mitzvah um, when the time came. But their friendship starts to devolve and goes sort of wildly awry in some incredibly high school cringe ways when a boy um, that both of them, I suppose, are interested in. Uh, sort of completely blows up their friendship. I feel like a lot of people were talking about this film this summer in like a more casual way. It's on Netflix. It's has Adam Sandler. Um, it has his entire family. I think it literally has his wife, his children. It has his whole family in here. Idina Menzel uh, reuniting with Adam Sandler from Uncut Gems to play his wife in the film, uh, not his actual wife playing his wife in the film. And just sort of like, bizarro film felt like i'd been gaslit by everyone who told me this was like a good like an adequate film because it's like so difficult to watch maybe it's because i'm a 
now a 28 year old guy or whatever. But I just found this film like just totally unwatchable. Like I think I was watching this with Karen when I was in Miami over the like in the middle of the summer. So probably like around 4th of July. And I think literally halfway through the movie, I went and like got my Nintendo Switch and started playing a <laughs> Nintendo Switch game in the second half of this movie. I was just not not enthralled whatsoever by the film. I think there was a conversation that Karen and I had at one point where I was just like, this is like really bad, right? Like, this is not just me. This is really bad. Should we turn this off and go to something different? We ended up watching the whole thing. It's a really dumb movie. Sandler has, has been so back and forth, and I just don't understand what he's doing. This The weird threat that he made at like the Indie Spirit Awards in 2020 or what, 2019 or 2020, where he was like, if I don't win the Oscar for Uncut Gems, I'm going to make the worst movie you've ever seen in your life. Uh, I don't know that he totally delivered on that promise, but it feels like between like oscillating between Uncut Gems and Hubie Halloween and that basketball film he made last year. That was oh, what, well, no, that's what I'm saying. That was well received. That was well liked. Yeah. Then back to this movie, like I'm and Murder Mystery 2 and Murder, like in all that, like it's just like unbelievable what he's doing over there. And I don't know what to take seriously because meanwhile, he has like another project with Benny Safdie where he's like probably going to give a great performance in it or whatever. And I'm just like, what is happening with him? It's like crazy. But anyway, you're no, you're so not invited to my bat mitzvah and uh, would not recommend that viewing experience on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, I was mildly curious about it because, you know, I've I've come around a little bit on Adam Sandler, despite never being a fan of his comedies in the past. You know, this looked like, oh, it's his family. It's kind of a coming of age type thing. This is not going to be necessarily his same shtick that, you know, he 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 patented during the 90s with Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, this was never one that I intended to to fit in and and. You know, once somebody, you know, once some of the reviews started popping up and everybody was just kind of like, even the people who were positive were like, this is okay. I was like, no need to, to pop this yeah. on. And now yeah. I definitely will. Yeah, definitely, definitely no need. All right, Scott, we've, we've sort of shook off the demons of 2023. Let's start talking about the films that we enjoyed the most. Before we get to our top 10 list, as always, we're going to read through our 20 through 11 Scott, will you do the honors of getting us started with your numbers 20 through 11 for 2023? I would love to, Scott. And as always, this was tough to, to narrow it down to just 20 movies, like I said. But um, this is what I was able to come up with. I left a lot of great movies out. But here, this was the, the cream of the crop for 2023, starting with number 20. My favorite documentary that I saw this year, Beyond Utopia, uh, directed by Madeline Gavin. Really just kind of unbelievable documentary about the situation in North Korea and specifically the the plight of those attempting to defect from North Korea. Uh, this the movie sort of centers on this pastor in China who is sort of a, a key figure in this network around Asia that is helping people who are trying to to get out of North Korea to leave the country and to defect. And uh, in particular, follows this one family of five, which includes an 80-year-old grandmother uh, trying to escape, not just escape from North Korea, but actually get to safety, which involves crossing multiple other countries before they can actually be considered safe. Um, 
it's it the the fact that the movie was able to be made at all is is kind of one of the most remarkable things just the footage that they get at every step of the way is you know you've never seen anything like this and you know more than that i think i just appreciated that i think the north korea situation of course most people know about it nowadays but it feels like we kind of aren't making as big of a deal about it maybe as we should be because there's statistics in this movie that like compare it very closely to like the Holocaust in terms of the amount of people who have been killed and oppressed. So um, I, I think it's, it's a good documentary in that sense too, of just sort of reminding people what the situation is. That's my number 20. Number 19 is the Davy Chow film Return to Soul. Um, this was a movie kind of with a weird 2022, 23 release Date, you may remember our friend Paul actually had um, this movie in his awards last year, some like it's got awards, but I kind of get it as a 2023 movie. It's the story of this woman who is Korean uh, by her parents, but was, uh, you know, born and born in Korea, but adopted uh, by French parents and ends up living most of her life in France. She decides to return to Korea and try to reunite with her birth parents. Um, and it becomes this really sort of fascinating tale of identity because she's struggling with what her actual identity is because she is Korean. She looks Korean, um, but, you know, she doesn't speak Korean and has never lived there her whole life. So it's just, it's a fascinating movie. Park Ji-min who plays, the, she's a visual artist who plays the lead character an amazing first time performance. And just one of those stories that I don't really know how I would ever encounter a story like this unless it was through a film. So I really appreciate that perspective on things. Number 18, a film that I think was really under rated under appreciated this year. That's You Hurt My Feelings by Nicole Hall of Center. Uh, back in the director's chair after sort of co-writing a few films over the last couple of years, Nicole Hall of Center. This is just a sort of very understated relationship drama, dramedy about um, a writer who uh, overhears her husband in a bookstore commenting that he running didn't actually store. like a running store. Yeah. He was buying socks. Yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> Uh, overhears him saying that he didn't actually like her new book when he had told her that he had liked it. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies play the couple. He's also a, a couples therapist who is maybe not that great at his job and starts having to reckon with that situation. Just a really sort of smart, funny, um, precise, and like re really just sort of it, it knows what it's talking about type of film, the type of film that you expect to see from Nicole Hall of Center when she's writing. Um, not like a, a, you know, big, huge film that makes a big deal about himself, just a, a small story of people dealing with real small, real world problems, but a really good example of that. Um, next up at number 17, another relationship drama of sorts. It's uh, Past Lives, uh, one of the most praised films of the year, Celine Song's debut, this romantic film about uh, of course, uh, a, a woman played by Greta Lee, who suddenly reconnects with her sort of childhood friend slash sweetheart after she has moved to New York and is living with her now husband played by John McGarro. Um, yeah, a lot's been said about this film, and I, I pretty much agree with with all of it. It's really one of those sort of breathtaking, swoon-worthy experiences, not just a great romance, but also like Return to Soul, an interesting film about cultural identity as well. This idea of 
Inyon, which plays such a key role in what the movie is trying to to say, um, I think is is such a again a, a something that I never would have experienced if not for this film and the you know central trio of Greta Lee, uh, Teo Yu, and John Magaro all giving wonderful performances in a film that really lives up to its acclaim. So Past Lives number seventeen, number sixteen, we have Hirokazu Koreeda making it into my top 20 for the second year in a row. Uh, this is with his film Monster, which we just talked about in our last episode. As always, he has such a light touch in the way that he depicts some pretty, you know, serious, heady themes about the relationships between adults and children, the nature of perspective. This movie is told in a Rashomon style uh, from three different characters' perspective. And when you get to the third act and it really just starts to unravel what it's been about this whole time, um, it turns into one of the more moving experiences, especially underscored by uh, music from the late Ryuchi Sakamoto. So Monster, another hit from Koreeda. Um, it's all he does. Number 15, Scott, do you hear the steel drums in the distance? Uh, at number 15, I have the Best Picture nominated Anatomy of a Fall from Justine Triette. Uh, this movie revived a subgenre of movies that I love very much, the courtroom drama. Uh, and it it brought it to, to contemporary audiences in spectacular fashion. Not only is it a very smartly and, you know, thrillingly directed and written movie um, by Justine Triette, but I think the, the movie really rests on the amazing lead performance of Sandra Hulaire as a woman on trial for killing her husband, allegedly killing her husband. Um, the complexity of that performance, the way she's constantly shifting how you feel about her, um, it's it's an amazing high wire active performance, certainly one of the best of the year, and it allows you to just sort of sit in the ambiguity that I think the movie really wants um, to. It works hard to establish. This is not just one of those. Did she do it? Did she not? Movies. If you're looking for that, then you should best look elsewhere. Anatomy of a Fall, a great movie. Number fourteen, one of my favorite comedies in years. It's Theater Camp by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman, mockumentary that debuted back at Sundance this year. I've watched this movie like three times. This is like my rewatch movie of the year for sure. Um, it's so funny. Uh, the ensemble. It, it, this movie is is kind of what I wish more comedies would be, where it just puts a lot of funny people in front of the camera and just lets them cook. Right. You get a sense that a lot of the stuff in this movie is improvised. And it all works because you have really funny people, whether it's Molly Gordon and Ben Platt, whether it's Io Adebri, who obviously had a great year, whether it's um, the great Jimmy Tatro doing what he normally does. Um, everybody is cooking from a comedic perspective. And then the final act of this movie, when we get to the actual Joan Still performance, um, it, it nails all of the emotional beats and the songs and the whole performance, the child actors, it's all great. Like more people should be talking about this movie. More people should be seeing and enjoying this movie. It's on streaming now. I can't recommend it enough. I know I'm going to rewatch it a lot more as the years go on. Next up at number 13, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Certainly one of the most talked about movies this year. This sequel to the animated masterpiece, modern masterpiece, that you know expands on the world of the original, the worlds, plural, I should say. Um, we're opening up so many new parts of the multiverse. And I really just loved, in addition to the eye-popping visuals and the voice performances and Lord and Miller dialogue, I loved idea of the canon and what does that mean 
for storytelling, because I think that's something that's so relevant to where we're at in the, the film landscape nowadays. Um, with so many stories feeling just tired and worn out, I really love that a big blockbuster movie like this was able to tackle such, such you know, uh, ideas that, that you know, I, I think need to be discuss discussed right now with where we're going. And number 12, another big blockbuster movie, John Wick Chapter 4, um, the sort of conclusion, perhaps most likely conclusion to Chad Stahelski's sort of epic opera of action, Keanu Reeves back one more time as John Wick, um, sort of just a long chase movie, um, which, you know, ends up culminating with him fighting uh, Donnie Yen's blind assassin. Um, an amazing movie, sort of just this sort of loving tribute to all forms of action movies. We have everything going on in this movie. He fights Scott Adkins in a fat suit, uh, you know, in, in this brutal hand-to-hand -hand fight. We have this amazing scene outside the Arc de Triomphe with cars flying around everywhere. We have this overhead, you know, sequence that looks like out of a platformer video game involving these incendiary rounds uh, from a shotgun. Amazing stuff. Um, it, this movie has everything. If you love action movie, action movies, you know, you're, you're going to find something, probably a lot to love out of John Wick Chapter 4. It, I, I can't think of a better way to conclude this if it is the conclusion again you know we'll see but i certainly feel that for now it is of this this story and finally scott at number 11 is priscilla by sofia coppola um you know uh, the type of biopic i love a movie that is not so much interested in telling the events of someone's life but in capturing how it feels to be them in the case of priscilla that's uh this young girl who is left alone essentially inside this giant mansion of graceland after she weds elvis presley well becomes in a relationship and later weds him i think um, you mean groomed i think is what you mean to say yeah sure i mean that that is essentially what happens in the movie um but the movie is is very subtle it is very understated again it's what you would expect a sofia coppola take on this story to be so much is told through sort of the production design and especially the the body language and facial expressions of kaylee spaney and the lead role of priscilla um, I think she's giving a, a spectacular performance, honestly, as is Jacob Elordi, who plays, you know, again, an Elvis that I think couldn't be further from the Elvis that Austin Butler played last year in, in the Baz Luhrmann film and to great effect. Um, so Priscilla, a really smart film about the life of this woman and what it felt like to be her, the type of biopic that I love, um, a really haunting film at times. Uh, again, the way it sort of just lingers in the very lonely Graceland. Um, I think it, it fits right in the canon of Sofia Coppola's movies, and it's one of the best that I've seen. So Priscilla, my number 11. Sorry that it missed out, but there you go, Scott, my 20 through 11. M missed out just just a week ago. You would have I, I will be revealed through the making the reading of the rest of your list. Probably just missed out because of. It would not even been number. Two. It would have been number nine, ago, yeah. probably a couple. It would have been number nine a couple days ago, probably. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm betting correctly on what two movies that I think will be in your top ten, having now knowing that they are not in your top twenty, uh, twenty through eleven, I should say. Good list. Uh, I'm just just listening here. We we have a consensus number twelve, Scott. We'll get to that when we uh, when when I get to my number twelve. But we have the same number twelve. But my number twenty to start things off, a uh, a, a family drama comedy 
of which I feel like we don't get many films like this. That's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, my number 20 for the year. Kelly Freeman Craig's uh, adaptation of the sort of, I, I guess it's fair to say, famous Judy Bloom novel, where you have Rachel McAdams, who I think many people have talked about over the course of the year, also as someone who maybe should have been in conversation in the award show. She gives the sort of one of the most tender, very earnest performances as the mother of uh, Margaret, uh, Margaret Simon in the film. And yeah, I, I this film we, we saw early in the year. I don't remember exactly when it came out, but it feels like it came out so long ago, but it still holds this place in the canon of the year that is this sort of like earnest, open hearted, good, good vibes kind of movie where I feel like there aren't a many movies that really ever operate in that space with a few exceptions, but B does it so successfully. And I think a big part of that is the Rachel McAdams performance. I think a big part of that is the Abby Ryder Fortson performance. And it's just, it's just sort of there to be consumed and to be enjoyed. And it says something deep about, or I should say it says something very real about growing up and obviously the the experiences are hyper focused on the experiences of uh, you know girls women coming of age around that time period in in middle school early high school i think is about where uh, margaret is in her i think she's 11 is it like she's like 10 or 11 years old so i guess it's like middle school yeah like early middle like elementary going into middle school type age age range and there's just so yeah there's so few movies who are i think interested in in that sort of coming of age type experience like usually it's a little bit older or, or frankly usually it's sometimes it's a little bit younger than that and the very you know it's not that deep kind of film but also can be that deep in the fact that it's just sort of really brushing the surface on these different topics it, and i think it has a really in interesting thing to say about religion and how to how best to approach that from a family perspective i just think it has a lot of really open heartedness and earnestness about it that really uh, recommends itself because there's not very many movies like it. I really enjoyed it. It's my number 20. My number 19 uh, is not my uh, favorite documentary of the year, but certainly the one maybe that I was looking forward to most to see when I walked into theater, the theater to watch it. That is Frederick Wiseman's Menus Placiers Les Trigois, which is about a three-star Michelin restaurant, or I guess actually several Michelin-starred restaurants in i believe it's southern france i i don't exactly know the geography of france super well but it is it basically follows the trois family the sort of patriarch uh, of the family whose name is escaping me right now but the, essentially uh cesar cesar trois um has this i think stable of restaurants basically three restaurants in this town and the film uh, I'm not as familiar with Frederick Wiseman documentaries as my first time watching a Wiseman documentary, but it just sort of sits there and it observes everything that's happening in these restaurants and lets you observe everything that's happening in these restaurants to, all the way from a 20 minute like uncut scene of the father and one or two and one or two of his children arguing about an almond paste and a recipe on a menu, like literally for 15 or 20 minutes of the movie to just silently observing all these chefs prep in the kitchen for service. And it's one of those things, especially in the year of, of in the year of the bear becoming as popular as it has. I know season one 
came out last year, but I think with season two especially, it became even bigger. The fact that this movie sort of comes on the heels of that and actually shows you what it's like, what is one example of a extremely awarded restaurant that the show The Bear is sort of giving you like a little bit of narrative insight to. The fact that this film, four hours, by the way, a four-hour documentary, uh, is was a real treat of an experience. I don't often, Scott, get a popcorn and a soda when I go into a movie, but uh, this is the rare occasion where I felt it, it quite appropriate to indulge a little bit in theater snacks and drinks as I observed what Wiseman observed for me. And, and I, I just sort of was very swept away by the whole experience. Some parts of it, and one of the things, like some parts of it work better than others. I think certain restaurant, like of the three restaurants, one at like one, one or two of the restaurants was more interesting than the third. And there's all these little sort of like stray plot points that come together, but it paints this very interesting picture. And it certainly was an enjoyable film. My number 19 of the year. Number 18 is May, December, the Todd Haynes directed flick. Uh, if that's the right way to describe it, Netflix movie about uh, a, tabloid romance 20 years later and an actress who has been cast in a film about that romance meeting the two people involved with it to uh, embrace a little bit of method acting to get a little bit of exposure to tell the story in a more authentic way and uh, and a, certainly a remarkable and interesting film in what it says about the different dimensions of these sort of tabloid romance stories, the exploitation that's involved on both sides of it, right? The exploitation that's involved with this particular romance and the fact that this woman, this adult groomed, uh, you know, uh, uh, was he in middle school? Was he so young that he was in middle school, high, early high school? He was very young, like ninth or 10th grade. It was, he didn't even finish high school. And then, you know, 20 years later, the exploitation of Hollywood and this actress coming into you know, cause chaos in their lives. And uh, a lot has been talked about Charles Melton's performance. He won some awards early on in the awards cycle, less so more recently as as the awards have shifted more towards the industry awards as opposed to the critics awards. But up and down the cast list with Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman have been, you know, really well regarded Todd Haynes. And uh, certainly gives you a lot to talk about, gave us a lot to talk about on the podcast when we talked about it, but that was my number 18 of the year. Number 17, Maestro. That's the Bradley Cooper written, directed, starring film. Uh, we have a whole podcast talking about this movie. I mean, we have a whole podcast talking about several of these films, but I, I will say, because this is this is another one of the more recent ones, is, yeah, I thought that this film maybe wasn't exactly what it wanted to be, or what Bradley Cooper wanted it to be, or what Bradley Cooper said it was, but what it was was still captivating to me. I found the performance really breathtaking. I thought Carrie Mulligan was good. I agree with everyone saying the film's not really as much about Carrie Mulligan as Bradley Cooper wants you to think that it is, but it was still a really captivating uh, interpersonal drama about uh, almost intrapersonal drama of Leonard Bernstein trying to wrestle with his genius, trying to wrestle with his love for his wife and his family, but also with his proclivities and his, uh, you know, his disloyalty in that 
and also what motivated him to uh, to use his talents and his um, you know prolific nature the ways that he did and wrestle with being famous and being successful. And yeah, it also has one of the scenes of the year with the directing scene at uh, which I think it's Mahler's second symphony at in London that one of that scene that six minute six seven minute scene is sort of an unbelievable so a remarkable film again uh probably will be remembered for the fact that it has just broken Bradley Cooper's heart in award season over and over again but nevertheless I enjoyed Maestro quite a bit a uh, beautiful film and was a really great film to watch in the theater number 16 that's Wes Anderson's feature length film of the year Asteroid City I thought that this film is not what Variety, uh, Owen Gleiberman would have you think as one of the worst movies. We don't need to say his name. This was a great film. Uh, The cast list, as usual, is a mile long. Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson are ostensibly the leads of this movie. Tells a story about uh, a, a widower who is trying to wrestle with the fact that his wife has passed away, that he and his wife's father are going to basically have to figure out how to take care of his, is it three, three or four kids? I forget how many kids he has uh, running around three. Yeah. And meanwhile, they get trapped in isolation quarantine at this junior stargazer conference in the middle of the desert in, you know, the, the, the Western United States and sort of, hijinks and chaos and deep reflection on one's life ensues and i think that the narrative structure of this is the fact that all of these events are in fact a play that is being put on by there's a whole meta there's a whole meta uh textual element of the plot where this play is being put on uh, in the world of the film and uh, there's an even longer cast of characters that comes in there, and there is this meta commentary on what it means to understand a piece of fiction or a piece of writing, what it means, do we even all ever really know what it means, and what it takes to parse and dissect and understand what art and literature and things of that nature mean to us as human beings. And so I it's not my favorite Wes Anderson um, but it certainly was a sterling outing from from Wes and gives me full confidence that he's going to keep making movies and they're going to keep being really good uh, for the foreseeable future. So Wes Anderson, uh, Asteroid City, my number 16. Number 15, The Zone of Interest. One of the craziest experiences watching this film. I saw this film at the New York Film Festival, Jonathan Glazer, in person the day after uh, hum- the October 7th, so the Hamas attacks in Israel, which was a already a totally surreal experience to be watching this movie and contextually. And yet the film, not a fun watch, didn't expect it to be a fun watch, but going into the film and and seeing Sandra Huller, who plays uh, Hedwig Haas, the wife of the, uh, the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Haas played by Christian Friedel. I think both their performances are, are just sort of, breathtaking and in, in a, a good way in terms of the quality of their performance, but obviously in a bad way and representation of, I think as everyone has started as sort of rightfully called it, the sort of banality of, of evil and the notion that you're watching this very almost pastoral family drama happening on screen while in the background, 
you have literally Auschwitz. And it's this sort of marriage of two movies that leave you and left me, I should say, feeling like kind of just completely empty on the inside. Scott, you sometimes describe movies that that we discuss on the podcast as films that you deeply admire, but leave you feeling extremely cold. And that's like absolutely how I felt about this film, like a huge admiration for what Jonathan Glazer was able to accomplish with this film. But my instant reaction to having watched the experience was, I don't think I liked that very much. And there's elements of the film that still sort of, I'm not confused by, but the avant-garde nature of it sort of leaves me, like sort of keeps me at arm's length a little bit. Some of the, inter I almost call them like interstitial choices in the film. Uh, at first, I wasn't really sure what they meant. Now I more just feel like, I think I get them, but I don't know if they just I just don't know if they work for me that well. And that that is like the one element that I think holds me back from I don't want to say connecting to this film, but for holding it in even higher regard than I do. But the zone of interest, Jonathan Glazer's film this year, it nominated for best picture. And it seems like more and more people are starting to see the movie. And I wonder if more and more conversation will be had uh, about it as a result of that. But that's my number 15. Number 14, Past Lives, uh, a film that was on your list in your 20 through 11, sort of the romance film of the year, uh, I feel like. is uh, People talk about Killers of the Flower Moon being a romance movie. Oh, Would not ultimately <laughs> call that a romance. Stop. Film. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. There is there is a love story in Killers of the Flower Moon, Scott, whether you accept that or not. Um, but no, this is the romance film of the year. I'd echo everything that you said about this movie. I, I find all three of the central performances of Greta Lee, John Magaro and Teo Yu to sort of all really work for me. I think the, the narrative structure of the film being like the starting point seven years later, seven years later as really, I thought that was a really effective structure and really enjoyed this film, it sort of has like one of the big, big emotional endings of the year for a movie in the scene where Teo Yu gets into his Uber, the whole scene there where they pan down the street and pan back. I guess it's not a pan, it's a dolly. Um, but they, yeah, uh, it's sort of one of those movies where Celine Song, who is the writer, director of the film, a first time feature director, is sort of just instantly catapults her into the conversation for what's like that what is the next thing that this kind of actor or this writer director is going to do and i'm pretty sure that she's already shot her next film at this point i think it's shot sort of in the fall it was sort of this there's a lot of secrecy shrouded enshrouded in it and that's very exciting yeah i thought greta lee was amazing i think she's one of the gives one of the best performances of the year and i think you were talking about the whole inyun aspect the cultural relevance of the film and and sort of like sort of fusing together this romance uh, and imbuing it with a lot of cultural sensitivity and specifically like a very specific cultural experience of immigration to North America from and her and you know in this specific story's case South Korea and I just found the whole film to be really breathtaking in this notion not of you know wow did I make a mistake or did I have this missed opportunity but like the notion of Inyon really being this idea of like in a different life what would this have been? Not that I made a mistake in this life and things should be different, but 
these small things that would be different in, in a different life in a different world and create uh, a different experience for one or, or of course both of these people and yeah really moving film not a film that i revisited but i do often think when i think about this film i wonder what i like this even more on a rewatch and uh it, it is at my number 14 for now but i do wonder if it's something that could move up even further on on, on a rewatch number 13 godzilla minus one uh the sort of I shouldn't say sort of the first Japanese film that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, that will, of course, imply that it won't be the last Japanese film that I talk about in my list today. Kind of crazy how how hard this movie goes. I know you haven't seen it, Scott. What a mistake. Want to. What a mistake to have not seen this oh, movie. OK, <laughs> look, it wasn't because I, I didn't want to. It was just, you know, I had a lot to fit in. Yeah, you absolutely did. But I'm so happy that I got to see this in IMAX. and. Wow, uh, what an experience seeing Godzilla do the do the heat ray, do the nuclear breath. Uh, really cool stuff. I mean, it's sort of remarkable. Oscar-nominated film now for its visual effects. What this film was able to accomplish on, I think, like a 15 or $20 million budget versus what Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania did on a $3 bajillion budget earlier this year. Like, I know it's, it's, it's like kind of lame and lazy to even make the comparison, but it shows you that a the cost of labor in japan is outrageously low uh but b more importantly what is still able to be accomplished when you do things the right way you take the time you need to do things and you do those things in, in a way that is uh i don't know if it's, if sustainable is the right word but is is done uh not just to churn out uh visual effects for the for the machine of we need to release a movie every three or four months to get this out the door. So amazing uh, visual effect film, but also the reason why it's so high on this list is because it not only tells a great monster story, but it tells a great human story as well. I think one of the real surprises of the film is not just that they made Godzilla a compelling big monster, but they crafted a compelling narrative of this person, this Japanese soldier in World War II who... Uh, was a kamikaze pilot who essentially uh, didn't defect, but but like tried like faked a, a malfunction in his plane so he didn't have to fly to his death in the fight. And uh, there's this great guilt that sits with this pilot through the course of the film because of the uh, decisions that he made, because of maybe the lives he was responsible for that die that people who lost their lives and that guilt carries with him the decisions that this person makes to deal with that guilt and then to try to make make right what he views as having done wrong is deeply affecting and the fact that all of this is in a wrapper of this kaiju movie uh was incredibly entertaining a great film number 13 godzilla minus one just this past weekend they had a black and white release of this film godzilla minus one minus color is what they called it i did not go and see it but thought that was a cool little uh stunt that they that they ran this past weekend i don't think it's still out in theaters now but that was a cool little stunt that i saw number 12 the consensus some like it's got number 12 of the year john wick chapter four Everything you said, Scott, times two. Uh, crazy that all, you you listed all these incredible scenes that I assume were your favorites of the movie. You failed to even mention the actual climactic the scene in the movie. Half of the movie. Oh, well, well sure, that, that too, yeah. <laughs> no, just the the, the, stairs, the stairs, right? The, sac yeah. the stairs to Sakura Kerr. Didn't even mention 
that scene, which I think to, to, for some people is is the best scene in the movie. Sure. And uh, understandable. I'd say the last whole the whole last hour doesn't stop being the best scene in the movie pretty much at any point, which is insane. But yeah, there's also the stuff up front, the whole the whole sequence where John Wick is just punching a wooden board for like five minutes. Uh, I when that when the movie did you have this experience Scott, when the movie started? And that happened. I like jumped out of my chair. It was so loud. <laughs> it's been <laughs> it's, so long. It, I might have to. It but, freaked yeah. me out. Um, but then, yeah, there's the whole sequence in Tokyo in Japan that is With just Rina like unbe yeah. unbelievable. Um, yeah, Rina Sawayama's in that. That's where we first meet. Well, I shouldn't say first meet. That is where we first are truly introduced to Donnie Yen's character, his fighting style, the fact that he's blind in the film. And sets a tone for a three hour gauntlet of action scene after action scene after action scene. So yeah, you describe the film as a, a three hour chase movie. That's kind of the way all the John Wick movies have been uh, since at least since like certainly Chattanooga chapter three, but also maybe even like chapter two before it. And it's just such a good time. It, the, movies don't like John Wick don't come along very often as a franchise and certainly chapter four as a, as an individual experience. And it, it, I guess I'm like, is, is he dead? Like, I, I guess, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. No well, one is I'm ever really dead. Yeah. But for the time being, we can appreciate that what they were able to accomplish in a four movie series was, I mean, really immense. I think it's a really immense accomplishment from Chad Stahelski and Keanu Reeves and everyone else involved. I mean, they single-handedly almost have probably got to the, at least to the cusp of having, you know, ensemble stunt stunts being added to like major award shows. Like some award shows now have awards for that, not the Oscars, at least not yet, but yet some award shows have added that award pretty much for John Wick, which is pretty remarkable. And that's sort of the impact that this series um, has had on on filmmaking and certainly I'm not going to say there's a bunch of like John Wick knockoffs out there I'm, there are some but it certainly isn't is inspiring the action sequences of a lot of movies I mean the beekeeper a film that just came out a couple weeks ago absolutely is inspired by John Wick like David Ayer is out there trying to make like a, a John Wick like and you know yeah because he doesn't he, he realized he can't make a David Ayer film because that will suck but, the Ayer yeah. cut yeah. yeah, sorry. I think we saw the air cut, unfortunately, of Suicide Squad. But anyway, um, yeah, John Wick chapter chapter four. That's my number twelve. Number eleven. You this was on your list as well. A little bit, a little bit higher up in terms of the number. That is uh, Beyond Utopia, the film about the process of a family fleeing North Korea with the help of this pastor and this like sort of sm very small. Um, almost like underground railroad railroad network of uh, people who this pastor has contacts to help these people along the way through China, through Vietnam, through Laos, Laos yeah. uh, all the way to is Thailand involved with it as well. Thailand is the yeah. safe haven. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it's a real journey. I saw this film all the way back at Sundance. So it's been literally a year since I saw this movie. And it's something that I still think about on a regular basis. It was as much as Navalny was sort of like the documentary that I remember out of Sundance from 2022. This is the documentary that I remember out of Sundance in 2023. And 
yeah, a, a, a sort of eye opening. Um, I think we all know, like cognitively, how oppressive the regime of North. This is going to something that you were saying earlier. How oppressive the regime is of North Korea, and we also know that some people do escape North Korea. But then to actually see what that experience looks like in some, at least in some small, through some small window, like we don't get everything, right? But we get some stuff. It's incredibly harrowing. And most people don't make it, right? But this family, this family did. And it's very, it is really a sort of, I don't want to say inspirational film because it's not really the emotion that the film engenders, but it certainly gave me an incredibly deep appreciation for the courage of these people who are fleeing the country, the courage of the people who are helping these people flee the country. Yeah. The pastor and, is unbelievable, honestly, like just, just unbelievable person. Yeah, absolutely. I forget. Is it, is it Kim pastor Kim? That's the guy's name yeah. mm-hmm. in the That's film. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's just unbelievable. And it tells more than once to be fair. It tells multiple stories. It's yeah. not just this one family. Um, the one family is like the, is like the nice, the, the nice story. The other two stories I believe it's telling are, are well, one, one is, one is to be fair is like archival footage, I believe. Uh, and mm-hmm. one is an unsuccessful escape, uh, that is being told. And it, so it, it is sobering at the same time that it provides inspiration. It also is a bit sobering as well. Yep. And, but I think it's really well constructed. I think that it gives a very honest portrayal of not necessarily what it's like to live in North Korea, but what it's like to try to escape. And I think that's sort of all we can hope for in in that endeavor. And yeah, my favorite documentary uh, of the year. Sort of, uh, I think it was the same for you as well as what you said. So yeah, it Beyond was. Utopia really feels like the documentary for me of, of 2023. And it's a shame that I, uh, you know, d- did it get what, who distributed, did anyone end up distributing the film? I mean, you saw, you saw it, Scott. So did you see it in a theater? No, uh, it was put on PBS. PBS showed the movie on TV like maybe a month ago and then immediately uploaded it online as well. So it's out there. Go watch it. It's uh, it's a really moving film. Beyond Utopia was my number 11. You don't even have to have a PBS subscription to watch. Yeah, it's probably just is like literally just on YouTube, probably, or it's like on PBS. I don't know if it's on YouTube, but it's on the PBS website. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Scott, as always, I feel like we end up being a little long winded on our 20 through 11 or an hour in. But we're starting we're starting the the big stuff. <laughs> Number 10. What is what is it? Give it to me. Yeah. Great job on, on the 11 through 20, Scott. You know, you may be hearing more about some of those movies. Uh, I would expect so. On my on so. my list. You actually yeah. may be hearing about one right now because my oh. number 10 is actually one of the movies that you mentioned in your okay. uh, your 11 through 20. That's The Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer. Um, coming in hot on this one. I saw this movie <laughs> last night, guys. Yeah. Um, so it could go up. It could go down. Honestly, as I've thought about it over the last 24 hours, I think up is the direction which it, it may, may eventually go for me because I'm really, really blown away by what this movie was able to to accomplish, as you said, it is kind of about the banality of evil, but the lens at which it looks at this sort of juxtaposing the business-like way that Rudolf Haas is going about, you know, engineering the extermination of these Jewish people. There's these meeting scenes where he's, they're coming up with like a new furnace, basically, for the the crematorium, new furnace system. Um, 
and it, just the cold... in, in, increased efficiency is what they're talking about in the film. Cold, pretty, yeah, pretty cold, dark stuff. Detached business-like way that they talk about these things, and then juxtaposing that with the almost business-like way that his wife, Sandra Hulaire's character, is going about maintaining the household, maintaining yeah. the garden, um, doing She's all the, of that. The, the queen of Auschwitz. I think that was like yeah. her nickname or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it does. It hardly needs saying in a film that somebody like Rudolf Haas is incredibly evil and, you know, one of the most irredeemable people at the heart of this, this you know, the worst Re- event. Real life person who was, yeah. who was tried and I believe hung for his... His contributions to the war. Yeah. But I think what the movie says that it's not interesting to say that what what's much more interesting is that the movie is, of course, positing that maybe his wife, you know, who felt like, oh, yeah, we should I want to tend, you know, tend to the household here. I want to set up this garden. I'm going to raise our children without giving them any sort of information about what is going on just next door. Um, Maybe she exemplifies a lot of other German citizens who in their own way were just as evil during this time because of their silence, because of their complicity in what was going on. I mean, there's just so so many chilling moments in this movie um, of just sort of the little details of what they are actually doing. You know, early in the movie, we see Sandra Hulaire trying on a fur coat that she has gotten from, you know, one of the prisoners. Um, the one scene, one moment which kind of just took my breath away was when her mother comes to visit and they're walking through the garden and her mother is talking about, oh, I wonder if this Jewish person that I used to work for is over here in Auschwitz next door. Uh, and then they, th- that proceeds into this sort of small talk conversation in which the mother is musing how frustrated she was that she did not get the curtains uh, that this woman had at her auction, you know, presumably when her her house was auctioned off after she was taken to the camp. And just sort of the, again, the, the cold, detached way that they talk about these things um, is so chilling. And then when you arrive at the end of the film, I really love the way that he chooses to conclude this film, um, where we have this brief footage from the present day of... Um, the Auschwitz State Museum, because it's been turned into a museum now, and the janitors sweeping up the museum. Um, this comes after the scene of Rudolf Haas, like basically throwing up, dry heaving, nothing actually coming out, right? Like it's almost like he's trying to purge what he's done, but like it's not possible to do that. Just in the same way that we get this footage of them sweeping up, and it's like, okay, they're cleaning up the place. But what are they actually doing? There's nothing that can actually be done that really can capture the horrors that went on. And that's why Glazer himself never even shows us anything that goes on on the other side of the wall. He's seemingly acknowledging himself that it's there's no point in, in doing so. And these exhibits at the museum or whatever, okay, you know, they, they collected the clothes, their mementos, they're, they're a reminder of what happened. But what what good does that really do? I think it's one of a few films this year that sort of reckon with a historical event, a horrible event, and, you know, question the role of all of us in talking about that event and telling those stories um, even into the present day. And what can that really accomplish? Because the evil that has been done has been done, and it's it's far beyond anything that we can ever really know or understand. 
Uh, so I think the zone of interest, as you say, an absolutely haunting film, one that will not leave my mind anytime soon, but so well executed by Jonathan Glazer. He doesn't go for sort of an easy, easy take at any any stage and not just in the, the storytelling and the messaging here, but the technical proficiency of this movie, the, the still camera for most of the movie. It really puts you in the moment, makes you feel like you're watching real life being played out. The score by Micah Levy is very spare, but the moments when it chooses to to rev up, I think, are are very well chosen. I think this movie is is excellent. And like I say, it could only grow in my estimation as I think more about it. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the choice to shoot all of the scenes. I don't know if it's all the scenes, but definitely the scenes in the house, their house at Auschwitz to shoot that like it's some like hidden camera, almost like reality, reality show, show. Yeah, yeah, is really effective. It's really effective in what it in what it accomplishes and sort of giving you the secret, the secret life. But the secret life is just that these people are living this very like normal, strained, strained marriage, no doubt, but like normal life here in like the bosom of evil that's taking place. It's like, and there are the, there are these brief moments too, where like, all of a sudden you get a flash of like what the true nature of these people are. Like there's, there's a, a Jewish maid basically who is working in their house and she upsets Hedwig at one point, Sandra Hiller's character and Sandra Hiller just like explodes and says like, I could have your husband, I could have my husband bury your, spread your ashes on the feet, this field somewhere. Right. It's like all of a sudden in the midst of all this sort of banality, this sort of we're ignoring what's going on. We're not really talking about it or we're talking about it in the most businesslike terms. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden this moment bursts out and it's like, oh yeah, that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. I, I mean, not, not to, not to create a who's more evil contest, but the, yeah. certainly the way in which Hedwig as a character rubbed me when I was watching the film was, Hmm, I don't like you very much. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, it, maybe that's a very obvious and, and plain thing to say, but in her case, it's almost like this is kind of what you expect this kind of person to be like. And the really remarkable one is Christian Friedel for me, because he's playing this person who, again, if you if you remove yourself, which is impossible from like the context of what's happening, it's like this guy just seems like a normal businessman. Like he just seems like a normal dude doing business things with a, you know, a family who's clearly he has a strained relationship with his wife, but he's an important businessman who's making business decisions and his company wants to not necessarily promote him, but has a new assignment for him that they want him to do. And when you match that with like the sounds of the crematorium at Auschwitz in the background, it's like yeah. stomach churning stuff. It's like absolutely stomach churning stuff. You hear babies crying and you don't know whether it's their family's baby or whether yeah. it's, you know, something coming from the camp, yeah. like just little details like that just get right under your skin. You just hear gunshots like every once in a while yeah. in the background. And you know that like they just murdered someone. Like they just killed someone. Yeah. And yeah, brutal. I mean, br absolutely. We're talking brutal. about the flowers. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, also the scene in the river, right? When they like. Find the human remains. Yeah. 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 
yeah, very respectable number 10, Scott. It was my number 15, uh, like like I had mentioned before. One of those films that held me a little bit at arm's length. Part of it was the decision to have this sort of flash forward into the future. Um, but part of it was also like the what the the girl with like infrared, like night vision or infrared I knew like, that's what you were placing apples. Yeah. There's just weird stuff. Where, like, I'm pretty sure I know what the point of those things were. It's just like, I don't know if they worked for me. I get it. I just like it, it just sort of this is still a four and a half star movie for me, but it just sort of held me at arm's length a little bit in certain respects. Yeah. I think I think if I can can sort of wrap my head around that stuff myself, that's the point where the movie might even go up for me because I, right now I'm probably in a similar headspace to you about that, that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. My look, we might as well keep talking about Sandra Huller because my number 10 is anatomy yeah. of a fall. Uh, the, the performance, not to foreshadow what I will again, talk about during our some like it's God awards, but Sandra Huller really feels like the, in this film, in Anatomy of Fall, feels like the performance of the year uh, in the lead actress category for me. I think that as compelling and as powerful as Kate Blanchett was in Tar last year, I feel that way about Sandra Huller here in Anatomy of Fall. She plays this wife, this mother, whose husband mysteriously uh, dies after their son goes on a walk. He comes back. His father is lying in the driveway dead she is believed or she is the prime suspect she is arrested she is put on trial uh the second half of this film becomes a courtroom drama it becomes a bit of a reckoning um less about whether she is guilty or not but in a manner of speaking whether it matters whether she is guilty or not and it, for daniel the the son um whether it's important that the court arrive at the truth or he arrive at something he can live with. And I think that that I found to be the most compelling aspect of the film that Sandra Huller is giving this, this adamantly defensive performance. I think she is a real sort of show of force throughout the whole film. This almost, um, this incredibly magnetic charisma. She doesn't kind of, uh, she doesn't exude naturally this kind of charisma. I feel like that you'd expect like someone like a Kate Blanchett has is this very powerful, um, assertive, uh, almost like, wi like will like exerts her will onto you type of type of actor. But what Huller is able to really conjure and deliver in this role absolutely feels akin to that to me. And there's a couple different scenes where I think that comes out most powerfully, but I think the scene in the film for me is the sort of domestic argument that she has with her husband over how he is feeling in their marriage and this fight that they get into the day before he dies that he has uh, created an audio recording of on his phone. I think it's just like such a, such a brilliant scene, such a brilliant performance from her. I think the construction of the film on a first watch maybe didn't work quite as well. I found some of the courtroom antics, even if that is how French courtrooms work in real life, to be a little bit distracting. I felt that the, I don't want to say contrivances of, of the plot to sort of get at what it ultimately is most interested in to be a bit distracting, but on a, on a rewatch and since I, and as reflecting on it more, 
I find that some of those things just become less distracting and less important in my mind in the film. And the film has really grown uh, in my estimation over time, because I think the, the power of the Sandra Hullard performance, the sort the, frankly, the, the emotion that's in the performance from Daniel, who's played by Milo Machado Grenier, uh, this, this child actor who plays the, you know, a legally blind son of Sandra and um, her husband, Samuel. I think his performance is amazing, especially in the final act of the film. And yeah, it just, the whole construction of the thing is absolute, absolute box office. I think, as you call it, like it's, you show up to the film and you want, you want a performance. And I think that you get a performance in anatomy of a fall. As much as I'm praising that, I don't think it's all about that because I do think you have someone like Milo Machado Grenier. I think you have a really compelling story. I mean, it's pretty widely talked about that. Um, Justine Triette, who has name I haven't mentioned yet, which I probably should have, who's the director and co-writer of the film. She wrote it with her partner, uh, Artur Harari. And the the fact that they weave this narrative and this construction around this with the intention of of not really having a position about whether Sandra is guilty or if she's innocent or what actually happened, because as is sort of revealed by the end of the film, you know, the film is not really about whether she's guilty or innocent that's not going to work perfectly for some people. Some people are going to get wrapped up about whether she did it or not. And that's what they're going to care most about. And maybe they'll form their own opinion about that. But to me, the fact that, you know, the sort of climactic moment in the film with the argument between Sandra and Samuel, and then sort of the denouement of the film, which is Daniel's sort of second testimony where he's talking about this conversation that he had with his father in the car months before. I just found those scenes so powerful and so moving in different ways that it really has that has just such, stuck with me in such a major way in the last three months, three, four months since I've seen this movie. And, and that is why it makes it to my number 10 on the list. Yeah. A great film, Scott. And, you know, you mentioned it has one of the best performances of the year also has one of the scenes of the year, that argument scene between Sandra Hilaire yeah. and her husband, the flashback. Yep. Um, yeah. The one I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I might have missed that you were talking about it there, but um, yeah, talking about how he feels in, in his marriage and how he feels trapped and yeah. how she won't support him yeah. and things like that. And it devolves into this much more uh, audibly violent uh, con, you know, conflict between the two of them. But that's part of the mystery. You don't actually know what happens uh, because the visual of the argument cuts away the back to the courtroom as right. it as it sort of escalates. So you don't actually know what happened between the two of them. Yeah. And it's able to do all that stuff without it ever feeling like gimmicky or anything like that, which again, I think is a, a real strength of the movie. So it's a great 100. movie. I had it uh, in my 11 through 20 as well. Yeah. Um, number nine. All right. My number nine, Scott, uh, again, I don't think this is the last time we'll be talking about this movie tonight. The boy and the heron by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, the, obviously the, the epic culmination of our countdown series we did on, the Hayao Miyazaki films this year. If you haven't listened to that, please go back and check it out. We went through every one with Jay and it was a lot of fun. And yeah, again, we arrive at his quote unquote farewell film, just as we did with uh, The Wind Rises. Um, and again, it feels like, yeah, this is almost kind of a perfect farewell film because it tells a story that is not an unfamiliar type of story to a Miyazaki film. It's this sort of unconventional hero's journey which is ju jumping between worlds and there's a lot of fantastical things going on you have of course the talking heron voiced by robert pattinson 
Um, you have these this whole sequence with the Warawara, you know, ascending to be born into the real world. Um, you know, just just a lot of sort of ideas and indeed actual images that we have seen before in Miyazaki films because he's he's hearkening back to so many of his past films with little Easter eggs almost throughout The Boy and the Heron. Um, but in the end, um, you know, sort of peeling back the curtain and looking at this film as a dedication to sort of his children, his grandchildren, um, you know, the, the people that he hopes to inspire, not so much to create in the same way that he did, because as we've seen again throughout Miyazaki's filmography, he has regrets about perhaps the the personal sacrifices that he made in order to create on such a level that he did. But um, to do whatever they want to do with their lives, right? To feel the freedom, to go out and forage their own path in the world. And there's something so bittersweet about that. The fact that he has arrived at this truth in his old age is, you know, a, a wonderful thing, but also the regret again perhaps that he feels at not being able to impose that perhaps on his, his son right i mean his, his son has followed in his footsteps and has had some has not not certainly not had the success or acclaim that his father has had and um you know there's a there's a lot about miyazaki being distant in his own marriage uh, when he was when he was younger so um just sort of that that whole journey that makito our protagonist goes on is um so fascinating to watch when you have especially when you have all the context for miyazaki and what he has meant as a storyteller in the f filmmaking world for so long I mean, i think i think he will go down as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time i'm not talking about animation i'm talking about in any medium uh, a, a film. He, he is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. If this is his last film, again, I think it's very fitting because it's sort of reflecting on his legacy and the message that he wants to leave. Again, not just his family, but the whole world with, right? And we should feel sort of this, this freedom and encouragement to pursue what we want to pursue, to forage a new path for ourselves, to create on our own and to not feel constrained by the people of the past, constrained by the structures that the world may set out for us, um, but to just be your own person and to think about how you live, right? How do you live being the, the central question of the movie? I think he's, he's trying to answer that question in this movie. Of course, it's also a Miyazaki movie, so it's visually stunning to look at um it's the the design of the worlds and these different crazy creatures that he's able to create the talking parakeets you know all of it the zaniness of it um at times again robert pattinson's voice performance is part of that too um that's not lost on me either the sort of sensory pleasures of watching this movie amidst all of the again the heady themes and everything that are going on i think you know I love The Wind Rises so much, and I think at the time I was like, "This is the perfect farewell film." I was to the point where I was I was a little nervous about seeing this, but I don't know if it quite surpasses The Wind Rises for me in terms of its overall brilliance. But again, uh, in terms of the what it what it leaves us with, if this is Miyazaki's last film, 
I'm completely satisfied with it. I don't know why I ever doubted him because he's never disappointed me a single time. And if he makes other films, I don't think he'll disappoint me again. Um, he's one of the best to ever do it. And The Boy and the Heron is just another reminder of that and one that I hope people will not let pass them by. I, I really, really, as much as I love Across the Spider-Verse, I really, really want this movie to take home the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. I think it is the deserving candidate from this year. Um, a brilliant film, a masterpiece, in my opinion. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about Oscar predictions maybe in a, in a few weeks' time. I think it probably will win Best Animated Feature. I think it's like probably just about the favorite right now over Spider-Verse. But I'm sure we'll spill more microphone minutes on that in, sure. a, in a few weeks' time. And, and certainly we're going to be spilling some more microphone minutes on this film later on in the show. So sit tight. <laughs> Your number nine, Scott. <laughs> yeah, my number, my number nine, not Boy in the Heron. My number nine is uh, a little film. Because it truly is a little film. It's uh, called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's got Daniel Goldhaber uh, directed, I think, co-written with uh, with one of the stars of the film, Ariella Bear. Yeah. yeah. And th this is a film, I think, that it debuted at TIFF in 2022. Did not receive, uh, I don't believe it got picked up at the time. It eventually was purchased by Neon. And I'm sure they were very excited about the movie because as the fact that it is the my number nine, it is a quite compelling film. But I'm also pretty sure they just had no idea what to do with this movie. It's an incredibly political film, uh, as you can guess, maybe from the title. Uh, it's adapted from a manifesto, uh, not the type of material, Scott, that you typically find being adapted into feature presentations. I think it's fair to say, but what they were able to do sort of to make this Ocean's Eleven-esque, like we're getting a gang together to blow up a pipeline type movie. I don't think that, you know, short of something like, it's just different than this kind of, I was going to say like, there's probably not another film this year that builds tension quite like how to blow up a pipeline does. I don't know if I 100% believe that but the way that like movies like Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon or these other films that are building a lot of tension in their narrative the way that those films are doing that is just like fundamentally different than what How to Blow Up a Pipeline is doing and the narrative conceit of starting in media race like the film starts you when they're getting together and starting their adventure their plot their execution of blowing up a pipeline. And then at certain points through that flash you back to the individual character motivations, how they maybe got into contact with each other to then decide to meet up together at this pipeline. But it's a really smartly constructed film. Uh, the cast is, is mostly a bunch of unknowns, but Lucas Gage for fans of, the most recent season of you and a couple other smaller projects recently. He features in this film, Christine Froseth, who's been another uh, actress, I think in smaller items on streaming services and smaller indie projects might be recognizable to some people, but other like this cast is mostly unknowns. And I think that really serves, serves it well, right? This, this notion of a bunch of 
I don't want to say random people, but random people coming together under this common cause of having been wronged in some way or have been having perceived to have been wronged in some way by big oil and their manifesto to the world is going to be leaving their mark by blowing up one of these oil pipelines. I, I don't really know how much more there is to say other than this film like absolutely rips in terms of tension. And I, it's very uncommon for me to be gripping, to be white knuckling my seat handles in a theater. That's just like not something that I do even in tense movies. And I was doing that in this movie. And, you know, if there's if there's one thing that slightly holds this film back, like I wish I could get emotionally invested a little bit deeper in some of the different relationships, but it navigates all like these different dynamics so deftly and so expertly these people. Uh, it has like different twists in the relationships that it's sort of, I don't want to say obfuscating from the viewer, but is not revealing to the viewer until later on in the film. It does that very smartly. It's a very smart script from Ariella bearer and Daniel Goldhaber. And yeah, I was totally blown away by not a first time feature director, but this person who was pretty much an unknown delivering something of this caliber at this level. And again, I don't know if this is a film that I recommend to everyone, but it's, if you're looking for a tense, you know, hundred minute thriller, you will not do better than how to blow up a pipeline. Yeah, Scott, uh, I agree with a lot of the words that you are saying here and perhaps I will add some more words for, uh, later, later on in the episode. Sure. We, we will see. I don't think we're trying to hide the eight ball. I think it's fine. No, we're not. I don't think, I think it's totally fine. And so let's hear about your number eight. All right, Scott, my number eight, we're going back to your 11 through 20 again with uh, another film that you mentioned there, May December by Todd Haynes, his film for, for Netflix, a movie that when it first came out, seemed like it was going to be sort of a big awards hitter and really faded as awards season went on, now only garnered one nomination for screenplay at the Academy Awards, almost just kind of throwing it a bone in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's disappointing to see because this movie is spectacular, I think, and very complex and um, also just very entertaining, especially in watching these three performances uh, by Natalie Portman, Julianne Morin, um, and Charles Melton, you know, in the case of the two actresses, the way that they play off each other, uh, the strange, you know, psychological dynamic that they have going on with Natalie Portman arriving to try to embody this Julianne Moore character on the screen, um, and sort of the Julianne Moore character who has tried very hard to put the thing which made her famous behind her sort of questioning the intentions perhaps of natalie portman's character and we 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 also are questioning the intentions. right yeah that. i'd say rightfully yeah. questioning the intention yeah for sure. um because there's a certain ridiculousness about intentional ridiculousness about scenes in this movie like when natalie portman goes to the pet store or whatever the stock room where they um where they they first yeah. made love crazy scene. and uh reenacts on her own sort of what she believes happened um so all of that is going on and i think all of that stuff is is you know i, I if it's going to be nominated in one category i think screenplay is the way to go because there's a, a ton of layers to what sammy birch is doing here and questioning 
you know, uh, the nature of method acting, as you've said, Scott, and of sort of biographical storytelling in films as as a whole, like what is the virtue of that doing? And it all sort of leads to this amazing punchline, which made me think of Tar and the ending of Tar last year, where the whole thing is almost a gag when you get to the end, right? Because the last scene of this movie is like we see Natalie Portman. Now she is on the set of the movie and she is acting out a scene. In fact, she's acting out the scene where they they get together in the in the store. store. Yeah. And um and it the movie looks to be of a direct to DVD quality. Um, looks no different from the TV movie version of the story that we see a brief clip of earlier in the film. Um, and, you know, like I said, just sort of this great punchline of like all of this effort, all of this, you know, that she has done, even going so far as, you know, she ends up sleeping with Charles Melton, right, with his character. The links that she has gone to in the name of art and this is what has come out of it, right? This, you know, Z grade version of the story that you know although despite what she may claim does not seem like it is getting any sort of getting towards any sort of truth right but is more interested in sensationalizing the story in the same way that so many had for for years leading up to you know the events of this film so i think all of that is incredibly compelling and smart um and and then you have everything going on with Charles Melton. And I think he gets some of the most powerful scenes in the movie. There's a scene on the roof with him and his son, where you really just sort of reckon with the fact that he has no idea how to be a father. He has no idea how to relate total arrested development of his. Yeah. Yeah. He has no idea how to relate to his teenage son because he didn't get to have his teenage years, right? Like he, he was a, he became a husband and a father in his teenage years and watching him try to sort of like impart wisdom on his son as his son is like nearing his graduation it's painful to watch and he has a line i wish i could remember word for word but it's like i don't know if this is a good memory or a bad memory that's again that's paraphrasing what the line is but he sort of has that to his son on in that scene on the roof and it's a heartbreaking performance. I really wish the Oscars could have found room for it somewhere because I do think it's worthy. Uh, but it also gets at, you know, again, in these big public sensational scandal stories like the one that we get in this movie, the people who often get left behind are the people who are the most victimized, right? The the Charles Melton character. You know, he's not the one that gets the tabloids, the headlines. He, people don't really pay attention to the effect that this has had on him. It's more about, again, the sensationalism and the, the you know, scandalizing of the Julianne Moore character, right? The the aggressor in this situation. Um, so, so much going on in this movie, a fascinating sort of meta text. I can't wait to watch it again, uh, but also just a, a strange and funny and campy film that I think only Todd Haynes could have made. It's, it's you know, he's really in, deep in his bag for this one. It's right there on Netflix. I highly recommend May, December. Yeah. May, December, your number eight. Scott, my number eight, a film from Sean Durkin, The Iron Claw, the epic-ish tale uh, of the Von Eric family, one of the great families in world wrestling. I think it's fair to say the ensemble cast of performances 
between Zach Efron, Jeremy Allen White, Holt McCallany, Harris Dickinson, Lily James. I mean, the list is very long and some of you know, one of the best ensemble casts of the year. I think it's it's safe to say one of those types of things where you, you watch the film and you're like, huh, I didn't know Zach Efron had this in him kind of vibes going on with this film because it's just a totally different. I mean, like it's a complete physical transformation. Of course, that's obvious to say he's put on so much muscle. He's chiseled his body into, into the shape of what you'd expect from someone who is playing one of the Von Eriks on screen. And nevertheless, the sort of like the, the trapped feeling that this film produces of Kevin, who's Zach Efron's character in this almost like this inescapable whirlpool or vortex of the Von Eric curse and his family members having horrible things happen to them. It's just sort of, it just sort of feels inescapable. And yet it is the story about how you can, it is possible to escape this negative, this vicious negative cycle of toxic masculinity of rep like uh, emotional repression of all these things. And it's a harrowing story. It's, you know, it's so, it's so harrowing that Sean Durkin talks about how they had to, they had to not include one of the members of the Von Eric family because yeah. the film could not sustain another tragedy in it. And, the fact that you come out the other side of this film and it's still even after two plus hours of sort of like a, an emotional gauntlet, it still is able, at least it was for me to extract the finality of the emotion that comes with the end of the film that comes with having Kevin Von Eric sit in his front yard with his now two young boys playing football and have the emotional catharsis and this emotional highlight highlight uh with, with them and i i found that to be a really remarkable performance from zach efron i found the supporting performances both from holt mccallany from harris dickinson from H jeremy allen white i found them to all be remarkable supporting performances holt mccallany i think is so essential to the film if you don't have that father figure that person who is perpetuating this toxicity of parenthood this toxicity of masculinity you don't really fully understand what Kevin is going through on his journey. And if you don't have Harris Dickinson and Jeremy Allen white to go alongside Kevin to understand how, what, like what his life could very easily have been like if he was not able to escape it in the way that he was able to like that just feels so, so essential to the film. And they produce again, incredible performances in that respect. And yeah, Sean Durkin's best work. I think talked about on the podcast, how I couldn't even remember if I'd seen his previous film, the nest I have, it turns out. And this feels like one of those sort of instantly memorable films that is going to stick with me for a long time. And that is the iron claw. It's a, it's a shame that a 24 put no effort whatsoever in to the awards yeah. campaign for this film because of how much juice they put behind and successfully so, right? Past lives in the zone of interest. But it's a, it's a shame because it's a really remarkable performance from Zac Efron. Uh, it's great for supporting performances, as I mentioned. And Sean Durkin does great work, you know, with the script and behind the camera. It's a really, 
you know, sort of masterful film all around. And uh, I can't recommend it enough. If you're a fan of you know, sports biopics, this is this is one of the greats now. Yeah, I'm going to say more about this film. But, you know, in looking overall, I think at the year, you know, it was it was a really good year for biopics. Right. Like and sure, I think some of the ones which, you know, you think about you, you put in that category. I think I think there are so many different types of biopics, I guess, is what I'm getting at. You think about something like Priscilla, which I already mentioned being its own sort of this very interior insular type of biopic, you know, very subtle then you think about something like Oppenheimer, which, you know, I think we're going to talk about, which, you know, is obviously so unconventional as well as a biopic. And then you have something like this, which I think is you know, maybe the most conventional type of biopic out of out of these great examples from the year. But yeah, it just it in just what does it's it trying so to well. do, certainly in what yeah. it's trying to do, the most conventional. Just it tell shows the story. you how good. Yeah, it shows you how good a conventional biopic can still be right if you if you put the juice behind it you get the right actors you get the right people involved and you have something to say uh, about you know the events that you're depicting in this movie we we rag on so many of these movies but like it can be done it can be good and the iron claw is is 100 percent proof of that um yeah definitely all right scott i think you're number on to my seven number seven Yep. Yes. And again, you're stealing all of my picks, Scott. Good. Uh, my number Good. seven. I'm there early. Yep. Um, yes. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Sure. Uh, I sure. absolutely adored this movie. I uh, saw it twice in theaters. There were only a couple movies that I did that for this year. Um, this movie is right in my wheelhouse, you know, in terms of the genre. As an as an eleven year old girl, is what right in yeah. your wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love coming of age movies. Um, you know, and especially, you know, some set from the female perspective are, are some sure. of my favorite movies of the last decade and even of all time, honestly. They, they tap um, into things that I feel like the the masculine version, in air quotes, the masculine version of those movies don't don't quite tap into. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I don't know why, but they those tend to resonate with me even more. Scott, this is another like great example of like a. I think uh, just an amazing achievement in, in terms of adaptation, adapted screenplay, right? Like if there was ever a movie to get nominated for adapted screenplay, it was this. Of course it didn't. And adapted screenplay is not a terrible category this year in the way that it's been in the past. But um, still, I think they could have found room for this movie because Kelly Freeman Craig does something that was thought to be impossible for me i mean i feel like we have one of these movies every year now right we had white noise last year we had dune the year before that of these movies that are like oh the great unadaptable text right well, i do think some people would say on. that they didn't quite make it on white noise but i know you disagree well yeah but in my yeah. opinion they did that's what i was going to say and then hey, yeah. for for my opinion you take all these three films it's like well you know what maybe if you just get the right person involved sure you can do it, right? You can adapt it. You get, you get Denny Villeneuve, you get Noah Baumbach, you get Kelly Freeman Craig. You can do it. And I think, I can't imagine Judy Bloom could be disappointed in any way about how this movie turned out. You mentioned all of She the featured in the movie, so... I, she did, yeah. <laughs> she didn't disapprove of it, I think. You mentioned all the great performances. Abby Ryder Fortson, of course, uh, stepping out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're so happy to see it and playing a real role here and doing it so believably and so winningly as margaret and then yeah the supporting performance of the year in my opinion rachel mcadams as her mother the subtlety the 
you know, emotion that she brings to this role. You know, the scene has gone around on Twitter now, but when she just sort of very quietly, very unassumingly delivers this monologue about, you know, the the split that she had with her parents over the fact that she has married Benny Safdie and he's Jewish and her parents are Christian and they don't agree with that. The, like, again, the, the understated way that she plays that scene, she's able to convey exactly what she's feeling, the pain that she's feeling, but she never does it in like a showy or, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's an Oscar clip. That's also an anti Oscar clip. Right. I feel like the, the, based on the performance that she's giving. And I think you get so many little moments like that throughout the movie and her performance. Um, yeah, it's not and, loud at all. It's very yeah. it's quiet. Would be the it answer. seems like a real person, right? I think, you know, it, it's maybe the best performance in her career, which I think has had so many great performances. And yeah, uh, you know, it didn't get an Oscar nomination. It wasn't really campaigned, unfortunately. And some of that may have been Rachel McAdams' own doing. People have commented on the fact that um she waited until oscar voting was over and then came out on snl the other week and introduced renee rap performing of course for me her being yeah. the original regina george and yeah. renee rap now playing regina george in the musical version of the film uh, people were commending her for waiting to do that until after oscar voting had closed not making a big deal about herself and i think maybe that's just who she is as both a performer and as, as a person. So I admire her a lot for that. The movie though is phenomenal. Again, I think it, it could, despite being based on this, you know, older novel, it couldn't be feel more contemporary, particularly in the way that it engages with religion and sort of the isolation that maybe many young people feel with organized religion nowadays and finding a place um, in, in the, that increasingly complicated world um, I think it, it gets all that stuff right. I think all of the stuff about, you know, the female body, the female anatomy is, you know, handled with such grace and sensitivity and even humor at times uh, that never feels distasteful or anything like that. Um, just it gets at all the anxieties of growing up in a way that feels so real. Um, and I think it, it's a movie that instantly enters sort of the canon of great coming of age movies, uh, especially a uh, contemporary coming of age movies. I think Kelly Freeman Craig has now done that twice with her, with both of the films that she's made. Um, and I can't wait to see where she goes from here. She's, she's clearly proven that she's one of the foremost chroniclers of sort of coming of age and young people today. And uh, this movie is just an absolute charmer an absolute crowd pleaser like i can't say enough good things like you're gonna just have a big smile on your face watching this um what what a what a delightful film yeah and one thing that neither of us i think really touched too much on it obviously it's impossible to talk about the film without thinking about it but the i think the way that it portrays the sort of coming of age aspect of the mother-daughter relationship yes. i think it's so profound obviously neither of us have experience with that we have relationships with our mothers of course to relate to but i do think that was a big selling point of the film and how kelly freeman craig and abby Ryder fortson and rachel mcadams were able to bring that to the screen in a way that it it feels really special to i'm not going to say unique but it feels really special in what it was able to accomplish with that and and really in sort of rarefied air so to speak in, in the manner in which it was able to do it 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a classic. All right. That was your number seven. My number seven, Scott, a film that uh, you can weigh in on in a week or two, I guess. Uh, it is The Taste of Things. It is France's nomination for the International Feature Oscar. It did not receive a nomination in the category of International Feature uh, a couple weeks ago, a week ago. But uh, one of the strange political machinations of France to, even though I prefer Taste of Things over Anatomy of a Fall, to have chosen it over the Palme d'Or winner may be a bit strange uh, and some political undertones for their opinions of Justine Triette. But nevertheless, Trenon Hung uh, directs uh, 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 Juliette Binoche and Benoit Majamel in this period piece. Eugenie, who's played by Juliette Binoche, is this sort of, not sort of, this esteemed cook in the household. She's not a servant, although I think in a period contextual wise, it can kind of come off that way. But she is the she is the household chef for this sort of uh, master gourmet chef named Dodon, uh, who's played by Benoit Majamel. And the film is all about the relationship between these two people, both in what they are able to accomplish in their cooking endeavors with him coming up with these you know, these grandiose menus of, uh, you know, multiple courses that he serves to his, you know, his eating buddies. And she brings all of those imaginations to life through the love and the sensitivity and that she pours into her cooking. Uh, food porn 101, I think, in this film. The first, like, half hour of the movie is just these two people and... Uh, sort of a helper made person making this massive multi-course meal for uh, and, and that is just like the whole first like quarter of the of the movie and it's kind of just magical and enchanting to watch it's it is very much uh, a unique experience in that way and if you're at all interested in that kind of experience it sort of immediately sweeps you up it did that for me Again, in the year of the bear and the in the year of uh, uh, menus, the Fred Wisen movie, it's like another food film. And so it was a magical experience to watch that. And then then you watch the film uh, transform and evolve, not just into, of course, a food film, but a, uh, a, a romance, a love story as well. Obviously, part of that is 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 explored through the metaphor of cooking as a form of love. Um, but also the more direct romance that's happening between Juliette Binoche and Benoit Majamel's characters in the film. I won't talk any more about that to avoid spoilers because, God, I know you haven't seen the film, but it, it does go places over the course of the film that, you know, are not immediately uh, apparent starting out, but definitely takes on the tones of of asking grander questions about what, you know, the, the meaning of life, the meaning of cooking, the meaning of love, all these things. They are interested. Of course, cooking is at the heart of the film and, con and a constant presence in the movie through which everything sort of funnels through. But it's uh, yeah, it's a really it's a really special film. It's my at the time it was my favorite film uh, when I saw it. At, uh, one of my favorite films at the New York Film Festival certainly has stayed there over the course of the rest of the year. And it is my number seven. Yeah, Scott, this is one of two movies that I haven't seen yet that I, and I think the other one might actually be on your list as well, but um, that 
I do wonder when I see these movies if my top ten is going to get shaken up. I just I just get some vibes. I mean, just just hearing the brief description that you've given there. I mean, sounds definitely up my alley. I mean, I love a food movie. I love like Ang Lee's Eat Drink Man Woman, like one of my one of my favorites, maybe one of my top one hundred favorites even. Um, it, it sort of sounds like it has the vibes of that, in which case I'm completely in the bag for it. So don't know when I'm going to see this one. I keep checking my indie theaters website. Nothing yet, but um, hopefully soon. Uh, yeah, my understanding hopefully. is that maybe in about a week is when it would start to release again. Yeah. Limited. Well, in, I don't I'm sure think I'll be getting it in a week, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's limited to start, but it is going to start slowly trickling out the theaters along with that other film that you're referring to. Uh, as well but yeah it it really because it evolves from not just a food movie but this this notion of like unrequited love between the two of them and what that and what that means and they're both they both give great performances i've i'm not going to say i've been hot and cold on juliette binoche in the past but i've certainly been hot and cold on the movies that she's been in but here it's like a it's a total home run so she's great you go ahead looking forward to it scott very much so all right i will move on now close out the first half of my list with my number six pick Let's just talk about one more movie we've already talked yeah. about, Scott. Let's be unoriginal again. Uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Daniel Goldhaber's film. Um, wow, this movie, as you said, first of all, on, on just a, a, a base sensory level, just like an unbelievably thrilling experience. Just, yeah, a white knuckler, like you said, the old Roger Ebert bruised forearm movie for sure. Um, some of these scenes, which are mostly just in complete silence, like where... Forrest Goodluck's character Michael is just like cooking up the the explosives and it's like oh if if one thing gets barely shifted you know a degree to the left or something then the whole thing could go boom gives um, you a, gives you a real appreciation for what they're doing at the Trinity test yeah enough I'll tell you that oh one. yeah well that too yeah <laughs> um all of that stuff just hair raising all the way up to to the end of the movie um and as you said I also love the way that the story is told it you know starts us in media race it's constantly moving forward on that story but it's also taking us back to into the individual stories of each person who is involved and i think that's so important because the movie is trying to show the different ways but equally sort of deleterious ways that climate change has expected has affected all of these people you know you have everybody from sochi ariella bearers character whose mom dies because of this freak heat wave right as a result of climate change you have um sasha lane's character who is has a terminal illness because she grew up near some sort of plant right where you know she she develops this rare condition as a result of that um and then you know you have you know people like Jake Weary's character who is has had his house taken over by eminent domain to build the pipeline um and so everyone is affected in their own way and you know you mentioned that the 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 movie is based on a manifesto I think one of the interesting things about the movie is that it's not simply a manifesto right I I don't think this movie is necessarily saying well, the, the film is certainly not a manifesto yeah I think the but the fact that it's adapted from one is like infinitely yeah. fascinating to me yeah but what I mean is I don't think this film is saying you know let's go out and blow up a pipeline together or glamorizing this uh this certainly pursuit not. because yeah it, it they they pursue it for they they portray it for all of its dangers and I mean 
you know, it, it looks like a very obviously uh, tense and scary thing to do, uh, which it which it is. And you know, to spoil it, I guess you know the the culmination of the film is that two of these characters go to jail and are probably going to be there for a very long time. Um, and because they, they give themselves up just so that the others can get away and the future is uncertain for all of them as well. And so I, I like that the movie sort of gets in the middle and says, look, we're not necessarily saying you need to go to the same links as these characters, right? They, they, you know, are, are complicated, but we are soon going to live in a world where climate change has affected everyone, right? In the same way that it's affected all of these characters. And people are going to respond to that in very different ways. And there are going to be people who are like the young activists in this movie who have it in their, their minds that, hey, we can, we can start the sort of revolution and if we do something like brash, like blow up a pipeline. And then where, you know, where do we go from there? Um, I think it's a much more interesting movie because it doesn't necessarily take a side. It's kind of, um, you know, it's making you, it's certainly making you empathize with all these characters. There's no doubt about that, but I think it's a little more. At the same time, I wouldn't say all the characters are likable. Yeah. Oh, certainly not. In the case of Lucas Gage and Christine Forsett's characters, they're kind of these bumbling idiots almost uh, they're the ones who like, seem like they're not taking it as seriously i think yeah i mean that they, they they are supposed to they have a key role in like the ultimate explosion but they get diverted from their task by because they decide to like have sex in the bushes basically and you know yeah. again which i think is a is a funny detail who among include. us can't relate scott a very important <laughs> task in which well, we get sidetracked by having sex in the bushes yeah no, I'm kidding. Because, uh, but a very funny detail to include because it's like, yeah, these people are like, oh, we're activists. We're gonna, you know, uh, we're going to blow up a pipeline. We're going to start the revolution. But also, they're like 24 year old kids who like are, you know, just just trying to to make their way in the world. And, yeah, I mean, uh, a number of these pe of these characters are literally college kids, right? Like, yeah. a couple of these yeah. people are Sean and Sochi. Yeah, are, yeah, are, are, certainly are. Yeah. So a great film, you know, like I said, works spectacularly as a thriller, but also as a very politically charged, but complicated film about, you know, an issue that we can't ignore uh, climate change. Again, it, this if there's one thing to take away from this movie, it's that there will soon be a day, like I said, when nobody will will be able to escape its effects. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the jarring thing, too, is that it's not just soon there will be a day, but these the the stories of these people's lives that have driven them to want to commit these acts are very much things that could very possibly have already happened today. So yeah. I think that's like that's the remarkable point. And to your, as that stretches out further and further, people will understand more and more exactly the harrowing experiences that these people went through. But yeah, great film. Absolutely. It was my uh, number number nine. You're number six. You're, you're six, Scott. Yeah, my number six. Scott, if I pitched you a movie where there were, uh, there was an aging man as the central character who uh, spent a lot of time in public bathrooms, would you be interested in this <laughs> film? 
Uh, no, but I think you're going to tell me why I should actually be interested in this film. I am because it's my number six movie of the year. That film is uh, Wim Wenders' Perfect Days, uh, yeah. the other film that you were just alluding to a few moments ago. It, it is. Uh, yeah. When you were talking about not having seen The Taste of Things, that is the sort of the German director's Japanese film. I said I, I still had more Japanese films to talk about earlier on. One of those uh, is this film, Perfect Days. So I'd never seen a Wim Wenders movie when I took a, I don't want to say I took a flyer on this movie because it did debut at Cannes. It was well, it was fairly well received at Cannes. It came highly recommended as a film that other people that knew me thought I would be interested in seeing. So I wouldn't say I took a flyer on it, but I almost wasn't able to make it to this movie because of work. And I managed to, to see it. And I was so happy that I was able to see it. It's one of those films, probably even more so than than uh, The Taste of Things, where it has really stuck with me. It stars Koji Yakusho as this um, this aging man who sort of lives in solitude and works for the uh, equivalent of like the park service in Tokyo, cleaning the public restrooms, the, the in some cases, quite nice public bathrooms of Tokyo and his name is Hirayama. He has this routine, this schedule that you go through several times over uh, throughout the course of the movie. He wakes up in the morning, he gets his uh, breakfast energy type drink. He goes to work. He cleans toilets. He has this sort of irresponsible, like not super reliable coworker who sometimes shows up, sometimes doesn't, isn't very responsible with money that he has to deal with. He, goes home he reads his book he occasionally goes to the local ramen shop where it seems like he has some flirtation with the uh, uh i guess the proprietor of the shop the person who's making the the food at this establishment and that cycle sort of just repeats over a few days and weeks slowly he begins to have other encounters that reveals more aspects of his life and i i won't go into these but the film starts to take a turn where you, where the the layers of the onion peel back, you learn more about this character. What ha, what has driven him to the point where he's at, and it's the kind of film, Scott, that there's not one thing that just sort of that that you could point to and say this is the reason why I love this movie so much, but it just sort of arrives at its conclusion, and you're like, wow, what a moving film, what an uh, emotionally cathartic film. I'm not even sure exactly what it is about this movie that that hit that like really penetrates your you know my core, but nevertheless I feel really moved by it, and that was my experience watching Perfect Days. I think Koji Yakusho's performance as Hirayama is is pretty is is one of those remarkable. He won Best Actor at Cannes. Totally understand why. I think Wim Wenders does a really good job highlighting the beauty of the public parks in Tokyo, especially the bathrooms and highlights the beauty of this like person and this character, even in his solitude, even in his, um, I don't know what the right word is like his, his white collar work ethic in a manner of speaking and the beauty in his sort of enigma, right? Like you don't really fully understand who this person is, what he's doing, why he's doing it. But the film slowly sort of unravels that to some extent. And you learn more about him and the sort of love and the tenderness and the gentility of of his 
uh, humanity. And it's a, uh, yeah, it's a special film. I won't talk anymore. I mean, I could, it's a film we haven't talked about on the podcast for obvious reasons. It's a film I could talk about for a really long time, but it's a movie I look forward to rewatching when it becomes more widely available uh, in the future. Yeah, I'm really excited for this movie, Scott. I had the, uh, I was at, at the indie theater last night watching Zone of Interest. I got the trailer. It's coming. It's not coming until February 23rd, unfortunately, but okay. uh, it is on its way. I'm very excited, not least because uh, Vim Benders made one of my favorite movies of all time, Paris, Paris Texas, Texas from yeah. 1984. Um, it, you know, as you're describing it too, and seeing the trailer, it, it reminds me of another film that I love. It, I mean, it sounds like I, I don't know whether this will bear out the film, but Patterson, the Jim Jarmusch movie, um, starring Adam Driver from about 10 years or so ago. I don't know whether that will bear out, but again, it, it sounds like there's a lot of ingredients here that I could could really come to love. So we'll be we'll be interested to see where this one shakes out on my list when we when we, when I am able to see it eventually. Yeah. Look forward to talking, if not on the podcast, talking about it more off air yeah. as well. Well, that's got that's the first half of our top 10 list. Why don't we take a short break, give everyone and us a little bit of a breather for a few minutes, and we'll come back with our top five movies of the year. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We still have our numbers five through one. Scott, kick us off. What is your number five film for 2023? Hey, it's a movie that we have not mentioned at all yet on this. Only episode, only because so. it was in my list. It, well, not literally in my top 20, but it was on my list yeah. for 2023. Well, that's what I was going to say is I'm pretty yeah. sure this you, you had this in 2022. You saw it at the New York Film Festival in 2022. But I think it's pretty definitively a 2023 movie. Doesn't get yeah. that. Yeah, I actively went out of my way to... Mm-hmm. take movies off my list that I saw at the New York Film Festival this year that I think were should definitely not be considered 2023 movies. And yeah. uh, uh, a couple of the, uh, Hitman, Richard Linklater's yeah. film, one of them, Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Yeah. Well, I didn't see the bike ride. The bike ride wasn't at the oh. New York Film Festival. But, uh, Ryusuke okay. Hamaguchi's film, The Evil Does Not Exist, right. um, is the other one. Those two I took off my... I don't know if they would have been in my top 20. I'd imagine one of them probably would have been. But they, uh, it, I took them out from the start, so there's no chance that they ended up there. But anyway, the film I'm alluding to is by one of our great independent filmmakers, Kelly Riker, and it is what I think could be her magnum opus, could be her finest movie yet, showing up, um, starring Michelle Williams as a sculptor who is just trying to get her work done for her gallery showing that is happening at the end of the week. It is a movie that is really sort of just set over the course of this one week. Um, Like I said, Michelle Williams trying to get her work done, but everything in her life seems to be getting in the way, whether it's her brother who seems to have some sort of psychological issues. He's played by John Magaro. He's digging holes in his backyard. Um, You have uh, the fact that her landlord is a complete basket case played by Hong Chow in a fantastic supporting performance and is refusing to 
get the hot water turned back on in Michelle Williams's apartment. Um, even though she's paid up, she pays her rent, you know, she does what she's supposed to do. And you have the fact that this pigeon has flown into wounded pigeon has flown into her apartment. Um, and she is now being tasked with uh, nursing it back to health, essentially, because again, Hong Chow, who's a sculptor herself, is um, is off doing her own thing and is kind of like, hey, you take care of the bird for me. So amidst all of this, she is trying to, you know, make serious art, like establish her career as an artist, get ready for her showing that is happening at the end of the week. And um, it, it's it's a wonderful film in the context of, you know, the the process of creating art, right? Which, you know, Kelly Reichert has been doing now for many years. She was a struggling artist herself for many years before she was able to sort of establish herself, at least in the independent film world. Although, you know, how much success that brings her even to this day, who, who even knows? But, um, you know, certainly at one point, she was much like Michelle Williams' character, just sort of struggling to to make it through to create to try to figure out what all of this is for um and i think it's a it's a strangely funny film for Riker. i mean her 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 stylings are so minor key like you know she is the master of slow cinema that you don't ever think about her making a funny film but this is probably the closest that she'll get to it i think it's so deadpan at times um particularly michelle williams performance she is just so thoroughly nonplussed and unamused by everything that is going on in her life. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's pretty funny to watch sometimes. And then again, contrasted with sort of the obliviousness of Hong Chao as the landlord, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get the water, you know, I'll get the hot water eventually. Uh, and then just wanders off to do her own thing. Um, all that stuff is great. And then you, you it all builds to this sort of, amazing sequence that happens at the end, which is the actual gallery showing in which all the characters from the movie um, reunite, sort of, sort of come together. We also have uh, Judd Hirsch and Marianne Plunkett who are playing uh, Michelle Williams's parents. We have Andre 3000, who's one of her, uh, one of the people that she works with at the university. Um, and by the way, talking to the university, I just really love like the world that is depicted in this movie. like. Reichardt inserts a lot of like, we're just like sitting in the classroom at times, just watching these sort of art students just create their own art. And it's it's just sort of fascinating to watch these little sort of interstitial moments that are just kind of building the world again, where we're just watching these students creating, but obviously fits along with the, the themes of the movie. But that show, you know, that gallery scene brings everyone together and sort of cements home i think the idea of the movie which is like you know when you're an artist there are a lot of people in your life and a lot of things going on that are going to get in your way of creating art and it can be very frustrating and anxiety inducing at times but the great irony of creating art is that the at the end of the day your art is not going to have any sort of value necessarily unless you have those people to show up to your gallery right unless the people show up, they pay attention to the work and, you know, they, they are the ones who, who have the power to assign it value sort of. Um, and so I, I think the whole sequence and the way that it, it plays out and 
uh, it wraps up all the different characters arcs is wonderful to see and i think again it's maybe the most personal film that reichardt has made i highly recommend i can't shut up about this interview but i highly recommend listening to the interview that she did with mark Marin on wtf early in the year because i think it it lends even more context to this film um but she's one of one of our finest i think and this could be her finest work yet i think it's just a a wonderful and insightful and yeah even sort of funny film at times um, about the process of creating art from somebody who has been in the trenches and knows what it's all about yeah it's been a long time since i've seen this movie now because i did see it at the new york film festival back in in 2022 but i enjoyed the film it did not sort of break new ground for me i did find the film maybe a tad too slow for my taste, uh, to your point around minor key, slow cinema, et cetera. But I certainly respect it for what it accomplished. And I totally understand why some people absolutely rave about this movie. And yeah, I think Michelle Williams, to see Michelle Williams do a film like this <laughs> a year after doing a film, uh, what's that? Film? Oh, yes, Venom 2. And then the, in the same year, also doing uh, The Fable. Okay. Is, I was like, surely you're talking funny. about The Fable ones here, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I just think that it's sort of incredible spread of performances. And you know what, Scott? She's great in all three films. I don't know about that, Scott. I, uh, <laughs> I do know sure. about that. I think uh, I think I got re- I think I got receipts on Venom Two, and that was not good. Is actually what that was. Uh, but uh, look, not my receipts. Well, strange. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yes, number five. Uh, respect it. Not surprised to see it here on the list. My number five, Scott, feels like a film that uh, Deja Vu, talking about this film for an hour about a week ago, another Japanese film, that is Hirokazu Koreeda's film Monster, which we spent probably 50 minutes talking about on the last episode. So I feel so repetitive just highlighting what exactly about the film that really worked for me, but absolutely adored this movie. You you described it earlier when you mentioned it in your 20 to 11 Rashomon style uh, narrative construction where it tells pretty much the same events from three different perspectives. The perspective first of the mother of this uh, elementary school boy, then to the elementary school boy's teacher, and then finally to the elementary school boy himself. That per- uh, <clears throat> excuse me. That is that boy's name is Minato. He's played by Soya Kurakawa. His mom Sakura Ando. We talked about all these people last week. I was deeply, deeply moved by the film. I love, like I talked about last week on the podcast, how I didn't know going in what the plot conceit of the film was, what the narrative conceit of the film was. And, you know, 40, 45 minutes in when it flips perspective and takes you back to the beginning, I was sort of immediately like, oh man, okay, here we go. And was sort of taken taken from there and the way that it evolves and shifts your perspective on the events that are happening, reveals more information, gives you more insight, uh, really speaks to so many different themes, all of which we talked about last week. It speaks to the themes of, you know, adults connecting to children, parents connecting to children, teachers connecting to children. It gives a perspective on the bureaucracy of the school system. Obviously it's specific to Japan, but I think there's probably some undercurrents that hold true in other bureaucracies of school systems in other parts of the world and of course it, it also tells this uh this story of 
I don't know if romance is quite the right word, but this sort of affection for, you know, between two two schoolboys and one of them, especially Minato, really not knowing how to process that self-discovery, that emotion that's happening. And the ultimate conclusion of the film, which I won't spoil here uh, because uh, we waited till very late in the podcast last week to talk about it and uh, before we spoiled it there, but it has a very moving conclusion maybe somewhat ambiguous maybe even the two of us think that it represents something different at the end of the film but i found the end of the film with the, the ryuchi sakamoto score and also uh with what i believe it's saying to be a deeply moving and um thoughtful end to a film that yeah i just i know it's it's a bit of recency bias probably but it feels like a film that i'm going to be thinking about for a long time and I loved I loved this film. And I think that the further I get away from it now, you know, about a week and a half removed from having seen the film, it, it hasn't dropped in my estimation. And I look forward to whenever it's out on streaming or when it's out on, um, you know, uh, digital digital purchase, like I expect to to buy it and I expect to rewatch it and, you know, show this to friends who I think might be interested and in, see what they think of it. So, yeah, Monster, Hirokazu Koryeda's latest film. Uh, a beautiful picture would definitely recommend it. My number five of the year, Scott, what's your number four? Yeah, my number four, Scott, uh, we're going to keep on going with the movies that have appeared on both of our lists. Uh, and sure. next we have the movie that some have dubbed as little women for boys. The iron claw is sure. my number four. Sean Durkin's film. Who has dubbed it that? I want to know. I want, I want to know. There, who there, said that. I think it was a letterbox review that like okay. had a lot of likes and stuff That's on funny. it, maybe or, or a tweet, one of the the two. But um, yeah, That's yeah, th- right. this this as you alluded to, Scott, is the the story of the Von Erich pro wrestling family. I don't care about wrestling; it's not something that's ever interested me. Um, it speaks obviously to the greatness of the film that you certainly don't need to to get involved in this very very human story uh, of these brothers and the traumas that they have to experience not only the the tragedies that lead to three of them dying um but also just the pressures that are put on them by fritz their father holt mccallany um and everything that they have to sort of endure as trophy kids so to speak right who are just being groomed towards this life as pro wrestlers, regardless of whether it is the good and right thing for them. Certainly in the case of the youngest brother, I, I, I can't, I always get the ages mixed up, but the, the character, I believe his name is Mike played by Stanley Simons, who wants to be a musician um, and has no interest in wrestling ends up getting, you know, forced into this career by his father and very tragic results occur. Um, and, you know, we see, uh, various arcs for for the other three brothers as well you know you, even to the to somebody like harris dickinson's character who, yes who does have an ability for wrestling who does seem to enjoy it but who has been has so much pressure put upon him that when he is literally throwing up blood uh, a week before he's supposed to go fight a title match in japan he never even thinks of like you know hey maybe i should go to the hospital maybe i should get this checked out instead of getting on a plane to go wrestle this match it's just not a thought in his head and he dies he the next thing you know he dies from this gastrointestinal condition and um 
it's it's a brutal film at times because it does not shy away from the reality of the story um but it's it's also uh, it, it finds beauty in this story i think as you've mentioned scott the zach efron character kevin von eric and the way that he is eventually able to learn from all of this and forage a different path for himself so to speak and sort of the closing scenes of this movie where he's interacting with his family his children um and realizing that he can number one he can feel emotion right in spite of what his father has ingrained in him for many years he can cry it's okay for him to to feel you know feel emotion about the very tragic things that have occurred to him it, it occurred in his life but also that he doesn't have to be his father and he can you know he can be a good parent to his children he can be a good person and he he can escape this cycle as you say escape the von Erich curse as it is referred to many times in the movie um so I think it is, it manages to find hope even at the end of this very, at times, devastating and bleak story. Also, I think you have a, a great supporting performance in here. I'm not sure if you mentioned her in the supporting cast, Scott, but Maura Tierney, who plays their mother, um, has, a couple, have a, ha, has a couple of scenes that are really just sort of burned in my brain, including one where she is staring at her black dress as she's preparing to attend yet another funeral for one of her sons. Um, and ends up being sort of concerned with the trivial nature of oh what if they realize that i've worn this black dress before what what if they see that this is the same dress i wore to the last funeral um rips your heart out that moment and i think she makes the most of her limited screen time in this movie everybody's really good as you said it's it's a good ensemble movie um and uh like like i uh, kind of talked about earlier just in terms of a traditional biopic it really is just such a such a powerhouse i mean it has those familiar sequences like this montage of them wrestling set to tom sawyer by rush but even those sequences just feel like they have a, a care and an electricity to them that you wouldn't see in you know one of the many half-assed biopics that we get every year whether it's a musical biopic which we've gotten a lot of recently or you know, just even something like Napoleon this year, I think, which fell very short for both of us. Um, it, it it was missing the vitality that a movie like The Iron Claw has. Um, not, not sure I'd call a film like Napoleon half-assed, although I think it made a lot of very wrong decisions sure. with its construction. Yeah, that's probably not the right word, but it, it in yeah. terms of just biopics that have fallen short in recent yep. years. Um, the Iron Claw is not one of those movies. It's the most emotional that I was in a movie this year. And uh, I think Zac Efron is somebody else who who I would consider a major snub for the Oscars, even if he never really had a legitimate chance of getting nominated. Uh, it's a very deserving performance. It's a film that deserved a lot better than it got. And I think as people continue to find it, I, it, it did pretty well, actually. Box office. Uh, it, it did. It, it did. It, it got the bag at the very least. It's yeah. one of H24's highest grossing films. It's not the highest grossing H24 movie. I think that's still uncut gems, maybe. But it's it's up there. Yeah. But as people continue to find it, I think there's going to be a continued. Wow. How did we not make a, a bigger deal about this movie? Because as A24 movies go. It has all the craft that you would expect from an A24 movie, but it also feels like something that 
pretty much anyone can can get something out of the experience, which is not something that you can say necessarily about every A24 film. So uh, I think it's a it's a real good combination of things working for it. And Sean Durkin, I don't even know how much I've mentioned his name, but his strongest film yet and bodes well for his future. Yeah, the question of whether whether he can find uh, in a, a source material or an inspiration like the Von Erich family again for yeah. another project, though, is maybe one of the great questions because you're talking about all the, the sort of like care and like maybe some sort of like X factor ingredient in a lot of even some of the very tropey biopic montage sequences. Like, I think that those work so well because of how much Durkin really puts into it from himself from this clear interest and passion that he has for wrestling and the Von Eric family story and bringing that to screen. I think there was a lot of interviews and a lot of talk about how this is something that he's wanted to make forever. And the fact that he's now gotten to make it, you hope that he's able to find something that will channel that emotion that he has for the subject matter. Uh, in yeah. his next project because yeah i mean it's absolutely it was my it was my number uh number six um sorry number eight and so you know it's it was up there for me absolutely and i think to your point around the most emotional i was in a film this year I, it's certainly up there it's absolutely yeah. up there yeah for sure what's your number All right four, scott? yeah that was your number four my number four scott a little emotional film uh taking it off the board before you before you say it later on uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. It's got Martin Scorsese's three-hour and 26-minute epic about the Osage Nation land in the 1920s in Oklahoma and how this cast of characters led by Robert De Niro but joined by Leonardo DiCaprio uh, methodically and systematically um, took land, murdered native indigenous people of the Osage nation and really didn't seem to feel too bad about it. I think it's safe to say uh, a sort of remarkable construction. One, one of those sort of, it feels like after you walk out of it, a remarkable feat of cinema, something that Martin Scorsese has long been capable of. It's fair to say this is not a new discovery about Martin Scorsese. He's been doing it for half a century, not that long. I don't think quite, but 40 plus years at this point, he's been, He's been churning out things that feel like they sort of defy the laws of of filmmaking. And although this isn't going to go down in history as one of my favorite Martin Scorsese films, I think the experience of having watched this in the theater, watching the sort of superb tour de force performances from pretty much everyone at the center of this film, Lily Gladstone, maybe even most notably playing Molly Burkhart, who is the love interest object of uh, affection turned how do I take this woman's land uh, interest of Ernest Burkhart, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is sort of being um, puppeteered by, you know, despicable man trademark, one of the most despicable men in cinema in 2023. That is William Hale, real real life person, William Hale, played by Robert De Niro. And it is this epic story. I think one of the feats that I'm sure we talked about on the podcast, although it's been a few months now, is that the adaptation of this work is so interesting because the film is not 
really constructed like the book is. The book is a bit more of a procedural mystery. Who is killing all these people? What is going on here? And the film is very much like everyone knew what was going on here. Uh, this conspiracy was sort of led and and spearheaded. And I think the film's position is that it's pretty clear is that everyone in town knew exactly what William Hale was doing. At least all the white people did. Uh, everyone was aware of it because everyone was trying to do the same thing. They were trying to marry these uh, indigenous, these Osage women. They were trying to gain the birthrights, the lands. I, I, there's an actual term that they use that I'm forgetting the name of, but the land rights that these Osage people owned that had this very extremely valuable oil uh, that was being discovered on it. And in the process, murder them so they could then move on, take the land and consolidate more and more land. And really one of the most despicable uh, things of the many despicable things probably that have happened in the history of the United States. And Scorsese sort of brings it to full bear with, you know, while extracting these incredible performances, whilst, you know, I think I mentioned it when we talked about it on the podcast, but from like the opening scene of this movie, you immediately get the sense that you're watching a film from a filmmaker that really knows what he's doing. That's like such an obvious thing to say, but watching the opening scene of this film, it's like how many filmmakers would shoot an opening scene like this? How many filmmakers would make you feel what you're feeling? And the film hasn't even really started yet. And I think that that's one of Scorsese's special powers to create cinema that feels so unique, that has so much gravitas behind it. There's a number of really just quite remarkable scenes in this film. Um, sort of from all sides, there's some interesting choices made in the film about how to portray certain things to show, you know, these sort of plots and these murders up to a point to show uh, sort of decision it makes at the end of the film to, to stage this, to have this narrative staged in the form of almost like a radio, a radio play and some choices that it makes around that. And the note that it ends on with sort of a present day view of of the Osage, the remaining Osage nation born Oklahoma. Uh, all interesting choices. I think, you know, maybe my mileage varies slightly uh, to some other people's, but it's just a remarkable film. I don't know what you want to say. Like, it's a long film. It I mentioned that the difference between the adaptation is this is one side's a procedural one's more of this romantic love story intermixed with this crime epic of these people murdering and taking these people's property. Right. And it's a complicated nuanced story. It is like, it really is like, it's not that Scorsese is trying to redeem any of the characters, any of the white people in this movie, but he's making it a lot less black and white when it comes to Ernest, uh, Ernest as a human, Ernest as a character. And I think that ruffled some people's feathers the wrong way for me it's sort of like the enduring question of almost all of Martin Scorsese's career in cinema is like, this guy is bad. How does that make us feel? He's like still human. And I think that's like one of the, one of the almost always impossible things to wrestle with when you're talking about bad people in nuanced movies. And Leo is like, you know, maybe we can all clown on Leo as like a, you know, a 50 something year old playing some guy who's supposed to just gotten out of world war one in his twenties. But at the end of the day, he has like the emotional range to deliver the epic kind of performance that Ernest ultimately required. 
in the construction that Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth, et cetera, came up with for how to stage the adaptation of, of this book. And then the final act, when it becomes a bit of a, uh, you know, sort of all the cards are finally on the table, the procedural element of the, of the novel comes to bear in the film, all those things like, yeah, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. And certainly by the end of the film, you realize that maybe they didn't come home to roost quite enough in the grand scheme of things. And that's a, it's a reality that we as Americans in America have to have to live with. And Martin Scorsese is certainly struggling living with that. I think it's pretty clear to say, but Scott, I, I suspect that we'll be talking about this film more later on. So I'll stop there. Yeah, I, I, we will. And, but I do want to say, you know, like about some of these comments about, you know, is, is he, how much is he empathizing with the earnest character and all of that? You know, I think it's telling, right, that the maybe the most convincing argument you could make for Ernest is, well, he was he was just a, a tool, right? He he was he was just too dumb to understand sort of the the depths of what he was doing, right? He was being used by this King Hale character. And I mean, he was certainly being used, but I, I the most generous read would be that he doesn't understand what's happening. I think he definitely understands yeah. what's happening. Well, that's that's what I was leading up to is to say yeah. if if that you know that's maybe the most convincing argument you could make for him. Not even saying it's convincing at all. But then Scorsese gives you that scene at the end with him and and Molly after all has been said and done. Right after you know he's admitted to his crimes on the stand, he is no longer really under the the influence of King Hale anymore. And all she asks him to do is look her in the eye. And tell her the truth about what she happened didn't. with these injections. Yeah. Did you did you and know he it was what, do it. Yeah. 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 He cannot do it. And I think that right there is like this is the type of person that we're dealing with, right? Like when all is said and done, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't just this this unfortunate guy who was at the wrong place at the right time, right? Like he had, he had was, agency. He was man. willingly used by Hale if you want to stick yeah. with that sort of construction of, yes. of the order of things i mean i mean throughout the film right hale is constantly shown as this very domineering personality who's very much in control of people like ernest and ernest uh i don't know if it's his cousin or his brother or whoever it is the i think he's i forget who play he's played by but um yeah it's it's escaping me right now is it scott shepherd maybe that plays him um but yeah yeah it's like he is being used by hale absolutely but this notion that he to your point to exactly what you just said that he didn't have agency and didn't know what he was doing and being yeah. asked to do is is a farce and the idea that yes maybe he can still have love for her and and all of that in the at the end of the day but yeah. you you got to wrestle that? with that demon if that's what you think you know yeah. like you have to you have to make sense of that yourself ultimately yeah anyway we'll we'll say more about that but uh sure. yeah scott it, I think it has to be on the list. It just, it, it has well, to be. it's on, it's on the list. So yeah. Scott, why don't you tell me what's on your list at number three? <laughs> a movie that I wish had been in your top 10, Scott, I'm honestly a little surprised that it didn't quite make it there, but um, yeah. the other countdown series we did, of course, this year was on the films of Wes Anderson. Um, and that culminated with the release of Asteroid City, which is my number three movie. Uh, Scott, I, love all of Wes Anderson's movies as we we saw throughout the series and I think he is on an unbelievable hot streak right now um with you know the French Dispatch 
course, he had Isle of Dogs before that, but before that, you had Grand Budapest. He's on a scorcher, except for that movie in the middle. (laughs) Well, Isle of Dogs, I still really enjoy, but I'm just saying, you know, four of his last five movies have been pretty incredible. Um, And, I mean, you know, we can keep going back further again. It feels like a a dumb exercise, honestly, at this point, because, like, oh, but the movie before that was also really amazing. I, I think that he went on his hot streak already in his career and i'm not saying he's not still making great films he is still making great films i don't think that he's on that hot streak anymore he started his hot streak with bottle rocket and it's still going on but um i wish that anyway. i wish that i agreed with you on that take i wish i did <laughs> well that is my take but anyway asteroid city a wonderful movie and um one of his most i mean probably his most he's he's increasingly started to make these very sort of meta movies. I think French Dispatch started flirting with it a little bit with sort of the different story inside of a story inside of a story type, you know, puzzle box uh, construction of the movie. And certainly we have that again here with the TV production of the play, but we also have sort of the actual behind the scenes of the creation of the play and you know, everything that's going on there. Um, Very meta. Very meta. Yeah, yeah, because he's really sort of interrogating the nature of art, like not to to put it bluntly, but that is sort of what he's getting into and how it plays into our, our lives, our existential crises, our quest for some sort of meaning and purpose in this life amidst so much that is unknown, right? There's There's so much in this movie that is unknown. We have literally down to a freaking alien shows up and steals an object and leaves. And everybody's just kind of standing there like, uh, what? And then, um, you know, obviously returns later. But you have that literal sort of feat of of the unknown. And then you have the more um, interior unknowns that the characters are experiencing, whether it's grief, right, at the loss of in the case of Jason Schwartzman's character, the loss of his wife, um, or whether it's just what we are doing in this life, right? I think Scarlett Johansson's character is at that point. I think the the actor, Augie, who is playing the J- Jason Schwartzman's in the play, uh, he is confused about what he's supposed to be doing in particular scene, right? Why does he put his hand on the griddle, right? This is a question that he poses to the director, to Adrian Brody of the play. Why does he, you know, I don't understand. Why does he do this? And Adrian Brody's character essentially tells him, it doesn't really matter. Just keep doing what you're doing, right? Just keep acting and maybe you'll figure it out, right? And I think that's kind of one of the big ideas that Wes is getting at here is there you know uh, are so many unknowns that are are in our lives and in our futures and maybe art can't fix them but maybe it can right and maybe in continuing to search behind the lens of a camera we can uncover truths and realities about life that you can't uncover anywhere else right that only in an artistic medium could you sort of get to this point of understanding or catharsis or whatever it may be um big ideas going on this is one of wes's biggest ideas movies i think that he's ever made 
amidst all of these existential crises that many of these characters are experiencing is a super funny and whimsical and just entertaining as hell Wes Anderson movie um, with all of the things that you've come to expect from him, whether it's the gorgeous production design, cinematography by Robert Yeoman, the costume design. Like, I don't understand how every one of his movies is not just getting down the line nominations in terms of, um, you know, the below the line categories and stuff. Like, it's insane to me that every single Wes Anderson movie has not been nominated for best production design. I mean, what are you looking for if you're not looking for this, right? Like this, this is it to me. Maybe I just don't know anything about production design, but more likely I think the Academy just doesn't know anything about production design. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe that's harsh, but anyway, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't you're get right. That. You're right. The guild of production designers, the production designers themselves do not production understand. Design. Yeah. You're right. I think, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously I'm being facetious, but I, I don't understand it because these movies are, are to me are, are exemplify what, what it's all about. But um and yeah, just just so you know that ensemble that you mentioned—not just Schwartzman and and um, and Scarlett Johansson, but you know some of the the West regulars, some of the people popping up for the first time, like Tom Hanks. You know, everybody plays their bit parts beautifully. Um, you know, one of becoming one of my favorite West collaborators is Jeffrey Wright, who uh, collaborated with him. Obviously, had that great part in The French Dispatch, and has a smaller role here, but um, is fantastic uh as the military commander at this uh this you know in, in this town in asteroid city um he has a speech scene that is pretty amazing when he addresses the students after they've arrived for the the camp the the event um and then later just some of his reactions and the way that he deals with the crisis of the alien appearing is it's it's funny it's it's really funny stuff wes is one of the funniest writers out there and honestly I, th I do think jeffrey wright is very good in american fiction but i wish that there was a more more love giving given to this performance that he had because it's a smaller role but i think it's it's even more impactful possibly but um everybody else in the movie is is terrific as well you know leave shriver hope davis maya hawk uh and uh, you know hilarious musical number another huge oscar snub the dear alien uh, was not nominated for best original song. Um, the song that uh, this little boy sings along with Maya Hawk and Jarvis Cocker, who again showing up in a Wes Anderson movie, um, I believe co-written by Jarvis Cocker as well. Um, so many funny little interludes in this movie, but I think it's a brilliant movie. You know, Wes Anderson's movies are just constructed so impeccably, both in their, again, in the technical aspects, but also in the ideas, the script, what he is trying to accomplish when the characters leave Asteroid City at the end of the movie. I just feel like I've had the complete experience here. And uh, I have watched this movie twice now, and I can't wait to go back and discover more. Because I think, like I said, there's there's even more to be discovered, maybe more so than any Wes Anderson movie before. Um, and just keep on, keep on churning them out, Wes. He's, he's starting to to crank them out at a more, um, at a quicker pace. And I'm all about it because his quality, the quality of the films has not diminished in any way. Maybe he's entering his Soderbergh era. His Go productions are too elaborate. They, he'll never achieve Soderbergh uh, <coughs> proficiency, I feel like. But he has scaled of... them back a lot. That's one of the reasons he has been able to put out, you know, 
a couple of movies, all these shorts as well in the last three, four years here. Yeah, that's fair. I was just thinking, like, it's not it's not like he's put out a ton of I mean, like Isle of Dogs was 2018 and yeah. Prince Dispatch is 2021. Yeah, he's made two movies since then. So like two movies in five years. It's not that I mean, it's faster than a lot than some filmmakers for sure. sure. But let's go. Let's go, Wes. Come on. One per year. Let's go. Fire it up. Now, I, I enjoy this film. I look forward to it. This is this is a film that I've wanted to rewatch for a while because I feel like part of me is just sort of like forgotten what I liked so much about the film. And I think part of that is because I really didn't feel like I'd piece together all of the components of the more meta aspect of the film. Like there's just, there's so much there to dissect and to, and to digest in the first watch what's going on with the sort of like in real life outside of the play or production that's happening that I don't, I don't feel like I fully walked away with on a first viewing knowing how I felt about it. And I feel like I need a second viewing to really clear that up. And I could see it going either way, right? Like that second viewing will say, oh, wow, top 10 material. Or, oh, wow, you know, yeah, this didn't really work as well as I ho- as maybe I had hoped it would. Um, so I just think I still, there's still like something to be clarified there for me. But yeah, Asteroid City, number three. I saw we, Maybe we glided past this. I mean, top three films of the year, Scott. This is where I feel like, and I, as I start to segue into my top three, this is like, these were the, it was easy. It was easy to name these three films yeah. as my top three. Same, same and, here. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it was the same for you. It was, it, yeah. It, I would say it was three that like were in that S tier. Yeah. For, for me, it's the same. Um, my number three is Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, the sequel to Spider Man Into the Spider Verse, also from 2018. We we're just talking about animated films from 2018. And you talked about it a little bit in your 20 through 11, but for me, it was such a transcendent experience watching this film. Well, I mean, I remember seeing Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse for the first time in the theater back in 2018. And I was like, this is unbelievable. Like kind of forgot that you can do incredible things in the animated medium that aren't just like Pixar or, you know, Walt Disney animation or like, there's like other stuff you can tap into in there. And you combine that with like, it being a comic book movie, right? Like there's other, like sort of the reminder that like something outside of the MCU, I mean, back in 2018, the MCU was doing great. And, you know, uh, Infinity War had come out earlier that year. You know, we were, we were pleased with what we were getting in the MCU at that point. But like a reminder that there's comic, there's a type of comic book movie outside of the MCU at the time, the DCEU that can really inject new life into a genre. And, that was my number two film of that year for a good chunk of time. Uh, you know, again, I did, I wasn't charting this over the course of the year, but for a good <laughs> chunk of time, this was my number two film for this year as well. So like, oh, it's going to be so funny. It's going to lose out again. Um, it did. It ended up being number three, of course, but yeah, a, an absolutely transcendent experience to then walk into this movie with as much tempered expectations as I possibly could. I'd be like, is it possible to really live up to the originals? Uh, you know, like what, like it, what it was able to accomplish both from like a visual style, but also with a character arc and development like miles, like even with these other spider people, uh, whether it's Jake Johnson's, whether it's Haley Steinfeld's, like all these other people who, who came into miles's life and sort of then had to leave it at the end. And then the fact that it, it places you back in this world further 
on this grand scale builds out this sort of multiverse of Spider-Man and makes that feel so within your grasp to experience and achieve in the movie and tells this incredibly compelling story, like pretty seamlessly continues what feels like Miles's arc of feeling both incredibly connected to his Brooklyn, his world, but also uh, incredibly alone being, you know, Spider-Man for this, you know, this universe. The fact that Jake Johnson, Haley Steinfeld, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Nicolas Cage's character, John Mulaney's character, all these characters that we were introduced to in the in the first one, like they're, they're gone. He doesn't have Peter Parker. You know, that Peter Parker is dead. He died in his world. And he has to be alone in his world because of that. No one can know. And the people that he wants and believes he can speak to about that aren't in his universe. And the fact that it then brings those people and creates this story back in and puts him at the center. You talked about canon events earlier when you were referencing and, and discussing this film. Yeah, the sort of meta nature of the canon event, but also the end narrative uh, meaning of the canon event and how Miles is like the the problem. Miles' existence is the problem. The anomaly. Yeah. The anomaly. Yeah, absolutely. And what that means for miles what that means for his friends what that means for everything right and to have a sort of like villain uh in quotation marks like oscar isaac and i don't know if you like how he quite is fits into the puzzle of like hero villain of course because he is a spider-man like but he's very much antagonistic to miles of course but then also like your traditional you know comic book movie villain with someone like jason schwartzman playing spot or whatever like it all the parts sort of sing and I never thought I would say that Daniel Pemberton could one up his score from into the Spider-Verse. I never thought I would say the soundtrack by Metro Boomin would one up uh post Malone soundtrack from the first one. But I'm at a point now, Scott, where I'm ready to say that this film is, it might be for me better than into the Spider-Verse. And it's like pretty remarkable to say that because as many people were upset at the end of the movie, it is part one of a two part film, which even though I was aware walking into the film, I and I thought that other people also knew this was part one of a two-part film, was it definitely not something that most people, even you, Scott, knew walking into the movie, uh, had forgotten somehow. And for me, knowing that going in, the end, although obviously an incredible disappointment that we couldn't just get another two hours and 20 minutes of whatever it was that the that Lord and Miller had cooked into this bad boy. But the, the prospect of having another film uh, and ending at the point that it ended at, it, it was like such an emotional rise at the at the end of the film as uh, Haley Steinfeld gets gets the gang, you know, starts a band. Right. That's the that's the theme of the last scene of the film. Right. And the score, I I, I sound like a, I feel like I, I had this this thread with you earlier this year where I sounded like an absolute crazy person talking about Daniel Pemberton's score. Um, and I kind of feel that like I had to hold myself back from doing that right now. But the fact that it interweaves all these different motifs and themes from ev- like all these different characters. I mean, I there's so many characters I haven't even mentioned right there. There's Oscar's Isaac character. There's Haley Steinfeld's. I've mentioned these people, but then there's, um, you know, there's, um, I'm forgetting. Gosh, Daniel Kaluuya. Sorry, Daniel Kaluuya's character of um, Spider, Spider-Punk. And, all these other characters here and there, and they have their own motifs and their own themes. And this is getting woven together into this, into this amalgamation of score at the end of the movie. And 
it's just sort of like he's not the first person to ever do this in a score. Like, I understand that. But it's there's something about this one that just like spins me around in a circle when I watch it. And yeah, the the scene that everyone is going to talk about and has been talking about and probably will always talk about is like the 90,000 Spider-Men on the screen and the chase scene in the middle of this film. They're all right. It's un- it's an unbelievable uh, sequence. It, I know that it took ye- literal years for them to make that sequence in, an- in animation, which again, the fact that they're able to sort of take what they did into the Spider-Verse, build on it, uh, go and go and go and go and go and iterate and keep going. Uh, I know that there was quite a bit of ink spilled on how that's an incredibly unsustainable method of directing for Lord and Miller on these, uh, like are producing on these movies. The fact that they sort of ground these people, these animators into the ground a little bit on the iterations that they would go through. Um, I should say that they did not direct the film. The film is directed by uh, Joaquin Dos Santos, Justin K. Thompson. And I believe is it Kent Powers? Kent Powers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Lord and Miller are very much the producers of the film, not the not the directors. But you see their touch sort of everywhere. And even though it is uh, Dos Santos, Thompson and Powers who directed it, it feels very much like a Lord and Miller endeavor. And yeah, obviously, when every you know, when everyone goes online after watching Across the Spider-Verse and sees that beyond the Spider-Verse, the finale of the trilogy, if it is a trilogy, is scheduled for release in at the time it was March of 2024. I think we're all like, that's pretty cool. I think it became quickly very clear that that wasn't going to be happening. And God knows when we will actually get the Beyond the Spider-Verse. It wouldn't surprise me if they delay the, the I think the film is undated. They just took it off their release calendar. It doesn't have a release date right now. Probably two years from now, we'll get this movie. But in my book, if they take the time to do this thing the right way and finish it the way that they started it with Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse, they can release this thing in, in 2027 as long as it's right. You know, that's that's sort of the big thing for me because it's in that territory of, in conversation of is this the greatest will this be one of the greatest trilogies of all time it very much is in that conversation for me but yeah uh, that's in across the spider verse i i could just keep you someone stop me i could just keep going on and on about the film I absolutely love it yeah scott all i will say is you know the the two best scores of the year in my opinion neither one of them's nominated for the oscar both of them are for animated films and one of them is daniel pemberton's score as you've alluded to here so um i definitely think daniel pemberton should have been nominated I definitely agree with you that Joe Saishi should be nominated because I know that's who you're talking about. Uh, stand down on Ludwig. Ludwig. Ludwig let it rip on Oppenheimer. That's my number three. All right. Yeah. That's how we put that third. I'm saying the two best. Though, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Scott, you've just mentioned Ludwig Gordson's score right there. So I think it is about time that we finally discuss a man named Oppenheimer. My number two film of the year is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Uh, Scott, I didn't get to join you and Jay for that episode of the podcast, but I have seen the film now. I've only seen it once. I do want to watch it again because I think it is a movie that yeah. once you understand, you know, where it's going, what it's trying to watching, do, what it's actually yeah, trying to watching, do. Yeah. watching the first two acts and seeing all of the pieces sort of being planted, uh, I think is going to be an, a, a fascinating and illuminating experience because, you know, on that first watch, I think you're just like, oh shoot like when things when the <laughs> shoes start dropping yeah in that third act and, and they do start dropping being revealed yeah. exactly sort of what lewis strauss has been doing this entire time but um the whole film is is pretty masterful from from nolan um you know telling us the 
the life sort of, but in particular, this period of few years in, in uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer's life, the, the rise to Los Alamos and, you know, him masterminding the project to create the atomic bomb. You know, it, all of that stuff is just fascinating to watch from just a strictly historical fascination perspective, but you're also watching sort of the conflicting emotions of this man develop because, you know, he starts off as he wants to accomplish this project to him. It is sort of the greatest assignment that he's been tasked with. And if he's able to accomplish it, then, you know, he could accomplish what, at least at that point, he considers to be one of the great feats in mankind, right? And this is something that he wants to achieve. But he starts to become increasingly disillusioned with what exactly he is working towards. And that kind of comes to a head with the actual Trinity test an amazing sequence, Scott. Just you know, it, it, you, you come into this movie and you're 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 sort of waiting for that scene, right? You're sort of waiting for, let's see the bomb, right? Show me the bomb. And uh, when Josh Peck of all people, you know, flips the switch and we see the explosion, um, it's it's truly something to behold. But even more than that is the reaction that that uh, Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer has. Of course, he utters the sort of now iconic line of I have become death destroyer of worlds upon seeing the explosion. Um, and, you know, the no, not the first time he utters those words in the movie, but yes. Yes, yes. But, uh, you know, it takes on sort of a, a new sure. meaning there, I think, after seeing the whole explosion. But, um, you know, that scene then leading into this finale this final act where again you're going to get revealed what exactly lewis strauss has been doing robert Downey jr's character and i think this is where you know nolan really just sort of kicks this film into another gear and all of the different stories that he's been telling because we have you know we have oppenheimer's perspective we have strauss's perspective we have also these sort of inner interstitial scenes of the this hearing that oppenheimer is being put on trial but you know they're not convicting they're just denying right um of him uh, of his security clearance right he wants to renew his security clearance he's been put on this sort of disciplinary hearing if you will and um where his entire background and his associations with the communist party are going to be interrogated by jason clark um and as we as we eventually learn it's you know it's an unfair fight because the deck has been stacked against oppenheimer and his lawyers it's essentially lewis strauss setting up this entire puppet hearing because he is upset he is humiliated about some of the things that oppenheimer has said to him and about him and maybe or th things or that things he hasn't that he hasn't said, said. Yeah, yes exactly. the things that he hasn't even said yeah. but um you know the the pettiness of men i yeah. think is such a huge theme in this movie the ego and yeah. the ego of men yeah, yeah. Because, yes, it is clear in Robert Downey Jr.'s case and Louis Strauss's case that he is driven by ego and pettiness, right, to do the things that he does. But he makes an argument that is not an unconvincing one as well in this rant scene, which, you know, not, not much more needs to be said about how great Robert Downey Jr. is in this movie. I presume, I presume it will be his Oscar clip. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, 
he's portrayed on, on the one hand in this rant as sort of just delusional and Alden Ehrenreich who plays the sort of Senate aide is just kind of looking at him like, yeah, okay, whatever, man, uh, during this whole rant. But um, he's also on the other hand, kind of convincing in what he's saying about, Oh, Oppenheimer, you know, he wants to have a conscience. It's now. all about his about, own. E it's all about his own ego. And yeah. It's all about it. now he sees that the atomic bomb could become something bigger than him. Right. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be, the guy who is you know created the atomic bomb and he wants to be the it. guy who created the atomic bomb and also beloved by yes. society not re remembered yeah. for the creation of it but not the bad things mm -hmm. i think as it's put at one point in the film yeah which is a very valid i think perspective that you could take on Oppenheimer's sure. arc i keep coming back to this one line scott where emily blunt who plays Oppenheimer's yes. wife, Kitty. Yes. And I, I do think that, unfortunately, the female characters, once again, given short shrift by Nolan in this movie, I, I hate to say it, particularly Florence Pugh, I think, as Jean Tatlock, but to a lesser extent also, I think there could have been more with Kitty. But I do yeah. think she maybe gets, like, the line in the movie when she, when, mm -hmm. when Oppenheimer has found out about Jean Tatlock's death and she goes off into the, into the world to him and yeah. says, yeah. You don't get to, uh, you you don't get, or we don't. We're not going to feel sorry for you because you sinned, and now there are consequences. Essentially, yeah. is what she says. Yeah, and you, you don't get to sin and have all of us feel bad for you when you realize there are consequences. She is talking about, of course, his affair with Jean Tatlock, but that quote can be applied to the creation the of the atom bomb, right? The whole film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think. You know, Nolan, Nolan doesn't get enough credit for his writing. I think I've said this for for often throughout his career, but I think um, it's it's true again in this case. Like it's it's so intricate what he is doing, stitching all of this together, and just little lines like that that stick with you. Like there's not any other, maybe any other movie this year where I have like quotes just on on a first watch that I'm like. I could just sit here and think about that one line yes. in the movie for like 15 minutes. 100%. Um, and that's one of them, you know, there's, Absolutely. there's other examples in the movie and yeah. Well, if he um, could do it all again, he'd do it all the same. Yeah. 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 And watching it all unfold in the third act again, so many sort of like mic drop moments, Rami Malik showing up to testify and, Pulling yeah. the rug out under <laughs> Lewis Strauss. You have don't don't, don't forget his the Robin be like oh, a, a, a junior senator from Massachusetts Kennedy, John Kennedy, Kennedy. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. but even even better than that, you know, when he when when Lewis Strauss has his last lines of the movie about uh, how he's still pissed about this whole Einstein thing, and Alden Ehrenreich is yeah. like, have you considered that they weren't talking about you something at all? That they important. were talking about something important. Yeah. Um, Brutal. And then the last scene, I mean, nobody does an ending like Nolan. Nobody. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the final scene is just, it's one of those where, like, the end credits hit and you just sit there and it's like, holy crap. You know, the the image of the of his face now that has been, you know, memed yeah. to death, but um, it's the whole build-up, the swell of Ludwig Gordon's music and yeah. that last line of, I believe we did. And the final, you know, images yeah. of the bomb the explosion of the, yeah of the atmosphere igniting yeah basically um yeah. you know and then fade to black yeah i'm just Chef's kiss cinema yeah
everyone I'm just is, like, is blown away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, maybe I'll keep my powder dry for a few minutes from now. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a brilliant film, Scott. You know, I, I, I think a lot of what I've just said is just kind of describing what happens in the film, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know that I'm just so, uh, yeah, that that's just kind of how I feel about it is when I love a film, it's like, I just want to be like, and then this happened. And oh, it was coming, amazing. And coming to the tent, brother. Coming nice. to the tent. I'm yeah. happy to talk about Oppenheimer with you. And when, uh, all, when all is said and done, this might be my number one film of the year. I don't know, because it's just, it's fresh for me. But um, it's a, it's an amazing movie. And I don't yeah. think it's in Nolan's top four or five movies, maybe. Well, so. I don't, I don't, I, it, it has. I know you might not agree it with that. It has steadily but. moved up the list. It didn't start there. I will say, view, like viewing one, it did not start in my top four yeah. or five Nolan films. But I will let you in on a secret that it is, I think it, it is in the top four now at the very least. Okay. So it's one, I think well, I'm excited for you to rewatch the film and, and not even because I think it's going to go to your number one necessarily or, or whatever it might be, but just what what you unlock in that second viewing because for me it was like the set the second and third viewings so stupid to say out loud probably right but the second and third viewings of the movie is where i like fully felt like i entered uh simpatico with the film fully right like i entered some sort of nirvana while watching the film uh, i do think that it 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 bears fruit on the rewatch for a lot of the reasons you were describing earlier. I do want to keep my powder dry because I'm going to talk about this film in a little bit, unsurprisingly. Um, but one thing I do want to say now, because I'm I'm not going to bring it up later, I, I don't think. But the complaint about the the women, right? Like Nolan writing women, which yeah. of course came up again in this film. Not I, I totally hear what people are saying. And I think there's many instances over the course of his career where in spite of how much I love the film that it's in, like he's not gotten the women that he's written right in this film. I just think that in this film, that is like kind of the point, like it's kind of the point that Oppenheimer doesn't think of these women as like deeply as like, as like human beings, deep people. And the film is like from, I know that there's two sides of the story, right? There's, there's the Strauss and there's, there's the fission and there's the fusion, but like the stuff from Oppenheimer's perspective is like, like the script is literally written in the first person. It is, it is supposed to be that way. And I and I'm I'm just not really entertained like hearing the critique about like we didn't make Emily Blunt or Florence Pugh's characters deep enough. I'm like yeah. the point the was that Oppenheimer doesn't that. think of them as deep characters. I mean, like that is yeah. literally the point. I think the fact that he expects certain things of them, but does not think of them as as peers to him, as yeah. I mean, people I, I with can... depth and humanity like he like him. I can, I can see what you're saying there. It's just it, it's. It, it just hits slightly different for me when viewed in the context of a filmmaker who has had these issues sure. over the years, I which, think. which and, I think is valid, which I think is valid. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, it is eventually Kitty Oppenheimer. She gets to have her moment right in the, yeah. the hearing where which is funny. she has the back and forth with Jason Clark, but um, I don't like your phrase st still felt like there, there could have been more there for sure. No, but I, I, I agree. Maybe there couldn't have been, but I, I hear where you're coming from. I think there's valid arguments on both sides. It's one of those things where, like, could there have been more there? Sure. Absolutely. I just don't think – I, like, literally don't think that Nolan was – like, he was trying to not give you more there. I think yeah. – unlike in other movies where I think he's maybe just gotten it wrong and mm -hmm. he maybe – and he probably would have liked to have done better with what he was doing, I think that it's just different in this case, which maybe that makes me an Oppenheimer apologist. I don't know, but uh, really, I do really think what I want to. Yeah, what I want to say just to, to wrap it up for now, though, is yeah, 
I appreciate the multi-layered yeah. portrayal of the figure of Oppenheimer because I mean that's the ticket right there. This this is not you know I, I was getting at this and what I was saying, but ultimately this is not. Hey, isn't it great? He built the atomic bomb, right? Like there's this rah rah sequence of him after he's after they've done the Trinity test. Oh, and I mean, he's that's standing in scenes. front of the American flag and yeah. stuff like that. Um, and it's like, oh well, you've seen this scene in biopics before, and like that's the end of the movie, right? But sure. nope, that's not the end of the movie because now we have he's going to go to the gym and make this speech, and like he's going to literally watch scene. people's faces melting off, like yeah. while he's trying to give this speech. Um, and you know then we have the rest of the movie and again reckoning with the the you know who the 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 true nature of oppenheimer and is he you know number one is he genuinely haunted by what he's done does he genuinely have qualms is this jason clark would say Yeah. yeah is this or is this simply an ego thing and number two does he genuinely have qualms about any of this and I, and I think the beauty of the film is that the answer is is yes to 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 all of it. Like I think he has qualms about it, and I think he's doing it as like a little bit yeah. of a vanity project, right? Like he he likes even, yeah. being the guy who invented the atomic bomb. And doesn't even, yeah, it doesn't even matter at this point if he has qualms because you know Jason Clark he lays it all out for him there. It's you know here's you were here at like every step of this, right? You were in the room. With you helped the, select the target when they were selecting the cities. Yeah. Like how you can't just sit back, you you can't just sin and then you know not help make us feel sorry for you when uh, yeah. there are consequences to what you did. So I, I think it's he did he did make people feel sorry for him afterwards. Well, yeah, yeah, people people I think knew, who need to have a more complex read on the movie, but I, I yeah. Oh no, I just mean that like like the consensus of him is that he's sure. not remembered for. Hiroshima and right, yeah. He's, he's remembered they give him the, the salmon and potato salad, right? And everyone goes and shakes his hand and he's yeah. honored now. But um, but yeah, no, I think I think it would be a gross mistake uh by anyone sure. watching the film to say that this movie is celebrating or lionizing the figure of Oppenheimer. It's much, much more complex than that. And that's why it's it's great because it's not a great man film. Yeah. Uh Scott, what are your thoughts on the meta nature of Chris Nolan being J. Robert Oppenheimer? (laughs) (laughs) We got to wrap this up. Okay, we got to wrap. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Yeah. Well, look, we're going to talk about Oppenheimer some more in a minute. So, yeah. Well, we got more topics to discuss. My number two, not Oppenheimer. It is uh, my fourth and final Japanese film of the night. Hayao Miyazaki's uh, twentieth magnum opus. I don't know. uh, The Boy and the Heron we've you talked about it already as i think it was your number nine if i'm remembering correctly yes and i look i was very pleased that it made your top 10 i'll be honest i wasn't sure if it was going to make your top 10 i was feeling pretty confident after it didn't make your top 20 but i was very happy to see it in your top 10 because it's a film that uh sort of like me talking about daniel pemberton's score and spider-man across the spider-verse like i felt like i i like started to bridge into like i'm a crazy person when i talk about this movie with other people because of how much i really adore this film i'm right in your camp the wind rises potentially in like my top four or five movies like of all time and it's one of those things where i'm like this probably was still the perfect way to end your career but nevertheless you have persisted you have made another movie and that film is the boy and the heron and as i talked about like an insane person probably for like 
I think I spoke for 45 minutes of the hour we our hour long discussion of Boy and the Heron on our podcast probably a couple months ago. But I'm sure I mentioned this then, but it really feels like a film among its many things that it's doing. One of the things it is, is that it is in conversation with The Wind Rises for me and how beautifully it has this conversation picking up where The Wind Rises left off of like, you know, I, you know, like go and go. You must live. Right. And then asking the question quite like literally in the text of this movie, how do you live? Right. Like it feels like it's a continuation thematically into this film, into this experience that Mahito is having in World War II, which very much has threads and tendrils of Miyazaki's own uh, upbringing, uh, maybe a little bit younger than when Ma what Mahito is here. But the fact that Miyazaki's father was, you know, an airplane engineer making parts for warplanes in Japan and that they moved into the countryside after um, a bombing in Tokyo and all these things like there's all there are all these similarities right and the fact that it feels so deeply personal deeply felt everything you were saying around that the fact that this feels like not just a conversation with the Wind Rises but also um, a, a letter to his family to his friends to his children to Goro to his grandchildren to his collaborators at Ghibli, like all these, all these people, it feels like it is meant for them, right? It's, it's sort of part of his soul. And there's so many different aspects of real people in his life being put into some of these characters. I mean, there's a lot of interviews out there online with Toshio Suzuki, who was the producer on the film, who was one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli, talking about how, you know, Isao Takahata is, you know, in Miyazaki's mind was this, was this grand uncle. I think there's traces of Miyazaki himself in some of the things that the granduncle is doing and some of the themes of the movie. Uh, Toshio Suzuki talks about how he was he part of him is in the heron and the relationship that he and Miyazaki have is reflective of the relationship instead of the sort of contentious uh, relationship, but ultimately, friend, you know, like friends for life kind of relationship that the heron and Mahito develop over the course of the film. I just think that there's something so meta and so deeply felt about the wind rises and the fact that it, the film was able to also capture that. It, it feels like if he had made some film that was great, that was wonderful, but it just sort of like left behind the meta feeling of something like The Wind Rises and reflection upon his own life, it would have felt different. It would have felt, I don't want to say wrong, but it would have felt like a, a big U-turn to end your career on like you had this meta film and then you did something just like sort of whimsy, right? And did something different that didn't touch on that. And the fact that it carries through makes like perfect sense to me and is one of the reasons why this film is so impactful and affecting. I think the cast of characters is is a bit zany, right? Like, as you'd expect in a Miyazaki movie, you have <laughs> Mahito and you have his his stepmother and his father and all these people. But then you have the parakeet king. You have the grand, like this mysterious granduncle. You have the heron himself, right? Who's this little man inside of a heron costume. And you have... Uh, Florence Pugh's character you have you know I don't want to start spoiling the movie here but you have like when he enters this sort of magical other worlds that are behind this tower that he's living next to in the countryside of Japan these worlds open up and there's a world of imagination and experience that are before him that he has to process and work through in his journey to save the future like save his future right like the fact that his stepmother has disappeared after the death of his own mother right like there's this character journey that Mahito goes through that for a lot of people is going to be the center of the experience of the film. And 
the beats of that emotional journey, I think ultimately end up being like incredibly affecting this notion that he starts out as, um, obviously like deeply emotionally distraught over the loss of his mother. And in many ways, not necessarily like wholesale rejecting, but not yet having come to terms with the fact that, uh, his aunt is now his stepmother, right? That his father is moving to this new woman and this new woman will, will bear him, you know, a half brother or whatever, right? Like that is, or half sister or whatever it is. And that is something that he's still having. He like, he is not yet accepted. And the fact that so much of the journey of this film is this boy being presented with this question of how do you live and all the things that come around that in the plot of the film, which I don't want to spoil and talk about. But then like the fact that the choices that he makes over the course of the film are very decisive and really, really neatly and beautifully complete this arc in meanwhile, all in the context of this, like very still very whimsy world that Miyazaki has created while still having all these like very self-referential, very deep, emotionally felt plot points and narrative arcs and all the things that you were talking about earlier with the Wara Wara with all these other characters and in this alternative universe, like the, the fact that the first 45 minutes of this two hour movie, it doesn't even show you what's in this sort of magical world that you know is eventually going to come in a Miyazaki film for the most part. And then it steps into that world. Like it almost feels, you know, it builds tension uh, in a different way than how to blow up a pipeline, right? It's like, you know, he's going to go there. Like, he's going to go there at some point. You know, he's going to get there. What's going to be on the other side? And, you know, I, I stand by the fact that I don't know if this movie is for everyone. I don't know if this film is going to work for everyone. I think it's a big swing. And I think you kind of have to be pretty invested in Miyazaki as a creator, as a person who's made all these movies over the years for it to work at the like highest degree. But the fact that a lot of my friends who watched this movie said they still really liked it. It was like a, a, a real moment of like Brett, like exhale validation, even though it, I know this film's not going to be number two on their list of, of the year. And it's not a five-star film for them. But the fact that it was still something that it seemed like, and I think the box office receipts prove this, that like is, has been accepted by the wide movie going public. I mean, this is like one of the top performing movies at the box office in like the last month of the year, which is like kind of crazy. And I think that it's remarkable that a film like as weird and and different and and frankly quite nebulous as this is something that people are like really watching and, and seems like really enjoying that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are, from, are at least like semi familiar with at least Miyazaki's most famous work, but probably aren't like may not even watch The Wind Rises, honestly. Yeah. For example, my girlfriend went to see The Boy and the Heron with me and had only ever seen Spirited Away of like the Miyazaki movies. Yeah. And she didn't even like necessarily love The Boy and the Heron. But now since watching it has been like, I want to watch more Studio Ghibli movies like on a random night will be like, send me a Studio Ghibli movie to watch. And has we've watched Totoro, we've watched Kiki's, she watched... Send Howl's, me a Studio Ghibli movie to watch. Uh, you just keep resending The Wind Rises. You're like, here's a new one yeah. for you to watch. Here, no, watch that's, it again. That's, that's going to be the next one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, I think that speaks there to like, you know, yeah. pe people, even people who were not already on the ship are yeah. getting on the ship with this one. well look there's plenty of room on board i'm not trying no no need to be gatekeepers here come on board war yeah. war get on let's watch ride. them all let's ride you can't go wrong yeah absolutely so that's my number two joe hisaishi's score scott you referenced it earlier i talked about it as well 
What's going so on? Good. Why is this film not nominated for best original score? What's going on over there? They always are clowning. Sorry, an animated. This film, doesn't need I to mean, be an Oscar I... rant. This doesn't need to be an Oscar rant. They're always clowning in that category. What are they doing over there? Yeah. Okay. They're anyway. clowning in every category, Scott. Let's just be real. Look, Robert Downey Jr. He cooked. <laughs> he cooked. I mean, yeah, they're not clowning. He'll be a deserved winner. I mean, I actually think you know if it if it plays out with. Killian Murphy, Lily Gladstone, Robert Downey Jr., and Davon Joy Randolph getting yeah. the acting awards. I mean, that's really good, honestly. Like, you, you can't, I, I won't be disappointed with any of those. Well, not a slight more digression before we, before we talk about uh, both of the movies, I suspect that, or two yeah. of the movies that are in this list. I don't know if Killian Murphy is the, is he favorite? Is he still the yeah, favorite I, over I Paul know. Giamatti? And is Lily Gladstone still the favorite over Emma Stone? I don't know anymore. Yes, I, I think Lily Gladstone is still the favorite. You may be right about Giamatti. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I would be slightly disappointed because I think Murphy gives a better performance. But Paul Giamatti is a great actor. He's really good in the holdovers. Like it, it, it wouldn't be. There's there's nothing on the level of a Jamie Lee Curtis esque catastrophe that could happen this year. I don't think. Sure. So I would um, agree with that. But that's a good thing. Look, get Killian. Get that Irish man his Oscar. Let's go. All right, all right Scott, number, number one movie of the arrived. year. I think we all know what it is, but go ahead. Yeah, the suspense has definitely gone out but uh, of the room, but it's Killers of the Flower Moon, Scott. It's Martin Scorsese's epic. It was my number one most anticipated movie all the way back in uh, 2022. 20, because, 2019? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there have been movies like that, but no. 2022, Scott, we had to wait an extra year for the film. It was worth the wait. Uh, sure. Martin Scorsese delivers. He always delivers. And I do think that in time, this could be up there with one of his best films that he's ever made, um, in, in my opinion. As you've said, it's just effortless. He makes it look so effortless from the first minute of this movie. It's just like, I'm here. I'm in. Let's just, I'm going to watch this movie and... You know, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch this movie as long as it takes to resolve it. You know, like at three, three and a half hours, maybe I just prepared myself well or whatever. But there was not like a point where I was like, OK, check the watch now or whatever. I'm like, I'll be, you know, I'll be ready when the movie's ready. You know, <laughs> that was kind of my my mentality about this movie. I think only a few directors can imbue that sort of momentum in their films to where you know, you're, you're there every step of the way over three and a half hours and you never feel bogged down. Um, so that's just, just one thing about the movie. Um, I think Lily Gladstone's performance as Molly Burkhart is another huge, huge thing for this movie. Um, the, the pain, the grief, the trauma that she has to keep under the surface because she is in a very dangerous situation herself. And even as her family members, her, you know, fellow Osage, everyone is picked off one by one around her. She feels the pain, but she cannot express the pain really. Or in the few moments when she does are all the more powerful for that reason. Like when her sister, uh, is he Kitty maybe, or I'm just thinking about Oppenheimer maybe, but, uh, the one sister who's married to Jason Isbell, the house gets blown up. Well, two of the sisters are married to Jason Isbell, but the second one, when their house gets blown up, um, and we see her just crying out 
you know, from the stairwell of her home. Um, such a powerful moment because of all of the the restrained nature of it, the holding in of that emotion that she's had to do over the course of the movie. I think the movie is her story, right? Because she is the the representative, if you will, of the Osage here. And the movie is ultimately interested in bringing this story about the Osage to light that was buried for so many years, but also in interrogating what good it really does to bring it to light now. Uh, because I, I think that's the most interesting thing about the film is where it goes in the third act. And so many people wanting to say, hey, Scorsese, the white man taking on this story of indigenous people, you know, what what can he bring to this story? And Scorsese seems to be asking himself that question, right? Like that's the scene we get at the end. You've talked about it. The sort of postscript, here's what happened after the events of the movie. And we have Scorsese himself stepping to the mic, reading the obituary of Molly Burkhart and finishing with, there was no mention of the murders, right? Um, similar to the zone of interest almost, kind of reflecting on the, the silence and you know how that contributes to these things, these horrible, awful things happening and in them being allowed to continue happening and to remain buried for so many years. Like, uh, you know, it's not just that, that it happened and it was awful, but it's, we don't talk about it, right? It's, you know, the, the, the story of the Osage doesn't get told like it should. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, look uh, at how few of them are left at the, at the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Scorsese is acknowledging his own, you know, limited perspective in telling that story, right? He's saying, there's only so much I can do. There's only so much any of us can do, right? Because, you know, it's been however many years it's been, 70 years or so since this actually happened, longer than that. It was in the 20s. Um, this is a century. Ago. Yeah, 20s. Yeah. 20s, 100, uh, over 100 years. Um, you know, it's been so long since this happened. It's been so long since anyone talked about it. The damage is done, right? Like telling the story now, sure, it raises awareness about the story and that's a, a good thing in, in a, on a, a macro level, but on a micro level, the damage has already been done and there are limitations to what we can do through storytelling. And I think it's so powerful to see somebody like Scorsese one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, somebody who has de devoted his entire life to making films, kind of saying, kind of, you know, saying with humility, hey, I even I am falling a little bit short here. Um, that's just the, the big takeaway from the movie for me. And, and then, you know, we have that moment. And then the last image that he chooses is, this group of Osage doing a ritual dance, essentially, as we fade to the, the credits. And I think that's a great image to end on, too, after this about, you know, again, the futility of telling these stories is here's what we have left, right? We have these few people. We have these customs. They're, they're sticking to their customs. They are living their lives as Osage that's that's all that they have now right that's that's the present of this story um 
and it obviously leaves you with so much grief at what was lost um and you know and, and just asks you to sit there in that moment and think what you know what is left for the for these people i mean we, we've witnessed over the course of three and a half hours the gradual extermination almost of an entire tribe of people and extermination is definitely the way to put it i mean it's absolutely at, like at a the hand, systematic killing it's a genocide yeah at, yeah. at the hand uh, at the hands of white people who have shown little to no remorse or you know in the case of Ernest, again as we're saying when it finally dawns on it like you know he, he doesn't feel anything it seems until he's His on the dies. witness stand right or his child dies and, and stuff well that yeah but in terms of what he has done when he's on the witness stand and there's that amazing moment of acting from DiCaprio when it all sorts of all seems to sort of wash over him as John Lithgow as the attorney is sort of just going through all of the victims and everything that's happened. Um, and the aggregate of it is all weighing on him all of a sudden. And suddenly he's feeling what his wife has been feeling for so much of the movie. Um, powerful, powerful stuff an eminently watchable movie in spite of being so you know brutal and devastating i've said that with a couple movies tonight but i think it's it's so true of of this film and you know ultimately the reason it comes in at number one to me i think is because of the metatextual commentary about storytelling and about how we make sense of and how we make art from unspeakable events and whether we really can i think it, it's a question that few films that i've seen have, have dared to tackle before and to see somebody as prominent as scorsese taking it on is groundbreaking and masterful and something that i will be thinking about for a long time yeah i almost wish there was more of it in the film right like it almost not that it feels like a, a ta like it doesn't feel tacked on at the end. It feels like a very much, a very much a coda on the movie. Sure. But I, you know, it, it, the film certainly wants to leave you with that, but I almost, I mean, I haven't rewatched it, right? Maybe I'd get more, maybe I would feel it more on a rewatch as knowing that that's how the film wants to end. But that's like, that's like the one thing. I mean, we're talking about a film that's number four on my list, right? But like, that's like the one thing where I felt like that's where you and I, like that's where the gap exists between you and I on this film is I don't quite get all the way there like you're sure. describing. Um, but is it watchable? Yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? Like it, it still has his trademark style, which is such a, what's well, such a, like a horrible thing to say about a movie like this, I feel like. But there's, there's so clearly a style to what he's doing and it has you know Thelma Schoenmacher editing <coughs> sort of the quick the quick cuts you know like some scenes look like they're you know a straight rip on stuff that you that you've seen like in every decade from Scorsese right like a fast like a yeah. quick cut across like a not not a montage but sort of a montage right like Goodfellas Departed like you see like Wolf of Wall Street like you see him in every generation of or every era of Scorsese and it's you know, it's kind of crazy to talk about it. The fact that it's in uh, a film with a subject matter like this, you know, it's... he doesn't mess and he hasn't lost his fastball either. No, definitely not. All right, Scott, that's your number one. My number one. It's not going to I don't need to like build anticipation, right? It's pretty obvious. It's Oppenheimer. 
I don't know what else more I can say about this because we had a long podcast earlier this year. Although, granted, my I think my thoughts have evolved a bit, but I just feel like I talk about this film all the time with people. I know that's not on mic, but like I just won't shut up about this movie. I've seen it five times, which even for me in films that are my favorite films of the year, I don't typically see the movie that many times. I got the chance to rewatch it uh, just a couple weeks ago again in IMAX 70 millimeter here in uh, in New York in Lincoln Square. And to highlight some of the things, I think just to just to talk about stuff in addition to what you talked about, like the, just the visuals of this movie are unbelievable. I know that it's it's a more unique experience to see the film on IMAX 70 to get the full aspect ratio, to get the full resolution. I know that most people watching this movie will not have observed the film in that way. But the how incredible the film looks in those very wide shots of the New Mexico desert of the European Alps or whatever it is that they're showing at the beginning of the film. Like it's just, it's gorgeous. The, the black and white 70 millimeter specially made Kodak film for this production with, I think the, the one that always, I think the first scene of the film that you see it is Downey in the back of a vehicle driving somewhere in New York. And it, the richness of the texture of that film is just unbelievable. And uh, all the credit to Hoyta von Hoytema, who's been shooting Nolan for, uh, you know, nearly a decade, going all the way back to Interstellar when the two first worked together. He just did an absolutely remarkable job shooting this film. And then you talk about you talked about Gorenson's score. I mean, the first time that score really kicks in when Kenneth Branagh's character He's playing um, Niels Bohr. Bohr. Yeah, Yeah, plays Niels Bohr. And he's like, can you hear that? All that matters is if you can hear the music. Can Can you hear the music, Robert? And it sort of takes like the strings take off in the score. It's just sort of, uh, again, one of those transcendent, you know, movie theater experiences that I've had. And I've been so fortunate and lucky to have, you know, five times since the film came out. And it's just, yeah, it's unbelievable. All my friends think that I'm crazy to have spent, what, 15 hours with this movie? uh now and i was like literally starting to think i was like i mean have i like really have i spent more time with a movie you know in the last few years like i probably not i don't think at this point like i've probably watched because five watches this movie right like that's like six or seven like seven watches for most other films and i don't know if i've got the juice on that in other movies but yeah i just this film is infinitely rewatchable to me like i don't get bored at all like the notion of going back and just hearing you talk about what excited you about the film? I'm like, do I just go rip this bad boy off the shelf this weekend and fire it up again? Um, I don't think I'm going to do that, but I, it had me thinking about it. And the fact that I've seen it five times and I'm still interested in doing that's pretty remarkable. I think, yeah, the cast here is unbelievable. Very long list in it. You've mentioned a few people, but I think the obvious ones to talk about would be your Killian Murphy, your Robert Downey Jr., you mentioned you mentioned uh, Josh Peck as well, who's a little bit further down the cast I thought, list. I want to say I thought Benny Safdie would be my third person. I thought he was excellent as Edward Teller. Um, yeah, I I thought Safdie's great. Makes a lot of his. I just I, I think he's becoming like one of my favorite character actors. Like all the little supporting roles he did. Sure. Obviously, he was in Are You There, God. It's me, Margaret. Last year, he he was in Stars at Noon for like two scenes and was cooking in that. Um, sure. Yeah, he he's he's a great that guy sort oh, of. I mean, show, you just left it. You left out the curse. I know it's not a movie, but sure. Yeah, he's certainly I mean, playing a character in yeah. that film. 
he he loves to show up and play a weird little guy and he's really good at it yeah agreed he's great david krumholtz for me is one of those people he plays isadore robbie um who i i think the more i watch the film the more i'm like man robbie's he's got the juice like this guy's this guy's such an important part of the film to me he's this guy who's He's not a mentor to Oppenheimer, but he always feels like the sort of like angel on his shoulder trying to encourage him to do the right thing and encourage him to keep going. I think David Krumholtz is excellent in the role. But then, you know, that doesn't even mention people like Josh Hartnett, who I think is another person whose performance has grown more and more on me over the rewatches. I really like his Ernest Lawrence, who is the nuclear physicist that worked with Oppenheimer in he was sort of the experimental physicist doing the experimental work. Oppenheimer's theory and he plays a pretty a pretty big role in the film but then there's also Matt Damon right there's Casey Affleck who pops up for a couple scenes Jason Clark you mentioned earlier Tom Conti plays Einstein the guy from from the pit in <laughs> the Dark Knight Rises is playing Einstein in this movie it's like hilarious Alden Ehrenreich I think is another great shout that you had mentioned he's great it's just, the cast is just unbelievable in this movie is all I mean to say and the fact that your whole movie is building towards the Trinity test. And then you say, wait, on, wait up, hold my beer. This is actually where the movie starts is like kind of, cra- I mean, it's, it's genuinely crazy. And I know that somehow most, you know, I don't say most, a lot of people don't feel the same way that we do about that. I wish that people felt that way. Uh, I wish people felt the way I felt about the, the third hour of the film. Do they literally want it to end with that scene of Oppenheimer in front of the American flag? <laughs> like everyone going, you did it. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speak for what these people want. Maybe yeah. we can call up uh, Dob Mob uh, mm-hmm. stands and 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 ask them what they think. But no, I, I think it's more just like not that they think the film should end at the end of the Trinity test, but just like the, the film just didn't work. Like the third act just like didn't come yeah. together for okay. them. And I, I don't think that um, like Amanda Dobbins thinks that the film should like the bomb should be the end of the movie. I don't I don't think that maybe I'm wrong, but that's not the impression I have. Just that whatever they do do with the third act didn't work for them. Not the case for me, but look, you talked about all these different highlights and points in the in the film that are outstanding. You talk about the third act of the film where Downey goes on his rant. You talk about the ending scene where he's staring into the puddles. I mean, just the fact that and I don't know if you picked up on this in your one watch, but you're going to see it in the second watch. The opening shot of the film is ripples in a puddle on the ground, which is the last mm-hmm. shot of the film as uh, he, he sees the the puddles of the nuclear explosions on the water. And it's the opening shot of the film. Like you're going to see that on your second watch if you didn't see it the first time. And it's just from the very beginning, it's just total control. Nolan has total control over what he's doing in the film. Yeah. Uh, when you rewatch it, you see all the pieces. Start to finish. I mean, if you think this is a traditional biopic about the Trinity test, then like the narrative construction of the film being split into two makes no like will make no sense to you. It won't work. It doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. Like why are we talking about who this Lewis Strauss guy is? Why does he even matter? And like you said, that only comes together in the third hour of the film. And it absolutely is the most effective part. And that's partly because Downey is just like absolutely unbelievable in this film. Like, I think he's just like maybe one of the best performances in the last few years. And it's sort of remarkable what he's able to accomplish. And I know it's like maybe lame to say this, but it's also easy to have forgotten that he had that kind of juice based on what he's been doing. Um, And I'm not even like trying to besmirch like Iron Man. I think it's a great performance for him. It's very charismatic. But stuff like Doolittle and like the other stuff, like he's just sort of been like not cooking. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that he sort of reannounces himself in this very serious project where he shows you exactly the kind of like magnetism and charisma he has 
in this like kind of way that you don't like very much, right? Like he's not a likable character, but he has that level of charisma about him, that force of will. And it comes together. He's wonderful. The film is wonderful. The film is like damn near perfect for me. It's like absolutely favorite film of the year. Well, we don't need to talk about Gary Oldman in this movie. I think fair to say, but uh, he also makes an appearance yeah. in the film. He was, he was Get in that the film. Cry baby out of here. Never let yeah, that was, that was a bit of a rough moment in a movie that otherwise doesn't have many. I mean, what's crazy is that, that it is reported that Harry S. Truman really did say that. Uh, down <laughs> oh, no. space. Uh, so they, they, he didn't, that's not made up, Scott. He really did say that to him. Oh, apparently, boy. which is kind of crazy to think, but um, you know, yeah. let Gary talk. But yeah, it's Oppenheimer. Uh, Killian Murphy, I hope he wins for best actor. Robert Downey Jr. seems like he is going to win for best supporting actor. Seems that way without some big surprise. And uh, not that lifetime achievement Oscars are really a thing in the director category all that often, but the fact that Christopher Nolan seems like he's finally going to win best director is long overdue. I mean, he hasn't even been nominated that many times in the grand scheme of things. Like he's been nominated a few times, but the fact that he hasn't even really been recognized that often in the category is, is pretty incredible to me. Obviously I'm biased, but the fact that he's being recognized that he seems like he's going to win for a film where he really does put all the pieces together. Not that he hasn't done that before, but he really does put all the pieces together is, you know, it's, it's quite a year at the top. I think it's fair to say. I, I just want to say something that no one else is saying, which is what a great field for best director this year, honestly, uh, between yeah. Nolan Scorsese, yeah. uh, Glazer getting yeah. in there, Justine Triette. Of course, I haven't seen Poor Things, you know, Yorgos Fine, sure. Uh, I, I get that one. I, I understand it. Um, but yeah, look, yeah, I don't no. mean to be a dick about it, but I don't think that I'd take any of those people out of the category for uh, another yeah. person who people are mad about. Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna say. Is I don't feel like I mean, if if you put Greta Gerwig in there in place of any of these people, I probably would be like just as happy. Maybe not in place of Nolan or Scorsese, but um, but still, like with the people that you have there, it's like I don't feel like it's in past years where there's been like an egregious. You know, we didn't sure. really talk about the Oscar nominations, and it's definitely not time to talk about it now. Well, well, well we're gonna we're gonna talk about it next week because because yeah. our original plan was to talk about either Perfect Days or The Taste of Things. It doesn't seem like you're getting either film. No, I'm week. not. We'll so talk about. We're it probably week. gonna have a nice little carve out for the Oscar nominations next week. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this baby up. Yeah, we did it, Scott. Do you want to walk through your ten your top ten films of 2023? Why don't you list them off? Absolutely. Number 10, I had Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. At number 9, The Boy and the Heron from Hayao Miyazaki. Number 8 was Todd Haynes's May-December. At number 7, I had Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Kelly Freeman Craig. Number 6, Daniel Goldhaber's How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Number 5, Kelly Reichert's Showing Up. Number 4, The Iron Claw by Sean Durkin. Number 3, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. Number 2, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Number one, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Great list. Great. I mean, again, before I recite my top 10, I want to say as whether or not you think the quality of like four through 20 is of the same level of past years. I mean, I just sort of like I felt like I entered a fugue state talking about my top three movies just now. So that the, at the top of the list, it was the cream of the Good crop time. this year for sure. All right. My number 10, Justine Triet's Anatomy of a Fall. Number nine, Daniel Goldhaber's How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Number eight, Sean Durkin's The Iron Claw. 
Number seven, Tron on Hongs, The Taste of Things. Number six, Vim Vendor's Perfect Days. Number five, Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster. Number four, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Number three, Justin K. Thompson, Kemp Powers, and Joaquin Dos Santos's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Number two, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. And of course, number one, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Scott, thanks so much for sitting here for four hours and talking about always a pleasure our favorite movies of 2023 uh, it won't be the last time we talk about this of course we have our some like it's got awards coming up later next month we will have hopefully if schedules allow paul aoyama friend of the podcast on for that episode where he will uh tell us i'm sure what his 10 favorite movies uh top 10 movies of the year are like he typically does uh I'll spoil it for for you if you want to know. Uh, I've seen I've seen his list. I ha- okay. I have seen his we list. Had, and he I, and I have and the I know same that he, top two in the same yeah. order. So yeah, and you had more. I mean, not the same order, but you had quite a bit of overlap in your top ten. It looked pretty we did, similar yeah, list. Yeah. He had yeah, showing yeah. up in there. He had uh, boy in the hair. What well, boy in the hair? He had yeah. Yeah. May December um, was in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Quite a quite a few films. Of, of overlap for the two of you, but he'll talk about the, he'll talk about those things and we'll talk plenty more about uh, the best performances, the best uh, awards Our awards. We will be still to give out. That's in a little bit over a month, Scott, but until the next week, I mentioned we were going to try to talk about the taste of things or perfect days. It doesn't seem like that's going to be possible. We will figure out what we do. It might just be talking about the Oscar nominations. Finally, it seems like maybe it's the right time to do that and we will have a full conversation about the best director category and whether or not there were any snubs worth note there but uh, in the meantime where can people find you on social media i'm at scarby den on all platforms and you can find me at at shelton 2013 on twitter letterbox serialized don't forget to also check out our podcast patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods if you can support us over there we'd appreciate that if not that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Where we'd appreciate it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, <laughs> all that. Especially this episode. I know it's a long episode, uh, but listen to it in parts. And we hope you find something that you get excited to go out and and watch. I know that uh, I genuinely, this true story, I have people every single year, this is the only episode of the podcast that they listen to. And they tell me that they know it's four hours long. They'll listen to it over the course of like a week or two. And they'll always be excited to check out some movie that they hadn't seen before, hadn't heard of. And so hopefully, I mean, that's the point of this, right? And in my experience, uh, that's cool. The way people listen to podcasts nowadays, like the longer, the better almost because it's well, no, I don't think that's true for everyone. I don't think that's (laughs) no, no, I I don't mean let's do it for eight hours. But I just mean, I think there are a lot of people who are like, yes, I listen to podcasts while i'm like it's not running while i'm doing work around the house while i'm at work so just give me something to listen to you know sure yeah well look people aren't going to be complaining we we didn't get to listen to this week (laughs) we did yeah stick that in your pipe and listen to it i guess i don't know yeah but anyway that uh that should do it for episode 263 we really appreciate all of you for taking time uh to listen to us chat about the best movies of 2023 in our opinion uh, like I mentioned, we'll be back next week, probably with the discussion of Oscar nominations. If not, then it'll be some movie we cooked up uh, to talk about. But we hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.